Today's episode is brought to you by the Usher Cup World Club Challenge, about to kick off on the 19th of January through to Sunday the 22nd of Jan. It's going to be skits, $7,000 for first prize, male and female equal prize money with competitors from Australia, New Zealand, America, France, Japan, Indo, Hawaii. The first of its kind, it's going to be so mental, held up there at Snapper Rocks, hosted by the Snapper Rocks Board Riders Club. Holy smokes, it's a skits event. We were there commentating last year, we'll be there again commentating this year. Cannot wait for it to kick off. Get on up there. Jump on the Usher Cup website, ushercup.com. Have a sus. It's a full-blown stonker of a surf contest. Even better, the event has a massive charitable push. It supports a lot of people and charity networks in need up there around the Gold Coast and Queensland and New South Wales. It's it's an incredible event. Uh, Theo, the guy who puts it on, is a fucking icon, and uh, we're frothing to be a part of it. And don't forget the surfing, like, holy smokes, last year was Skits, Nathan Hedge, Sheldon Simkus, Dexter Muskins, like the full underground core lords from the zone and elsewhere, now broadened uh, to include the global field. I'm sure there's going to be some high-end surfers coming in from Indo, from the Padma Beach boys, and uh, elsewhere on the planet. Super psyched to be a part of it. Tap in. That's well presents Corbords. Yes, shredheads, waxheads, kooks, and barnies, welcome to Core Lords. Today, you're going to meet one of the godfathers of inner city surf culture, Matt Elks. Elksy was an iconic, albeit polarizing figure in Bondi when I was a kid. A red hot surfer, he rode for hot buttered surfboards where he was mentored by the great Terry Fitzgerald and Derek Hind. He was also the first Australian to ride for Dahui and ended up going into business with Fast Eddie Rothman and Mudaka Sim, where he served as the Australasian license holder for the company. As you're about to hear, Elksy has lived some life, graduating from the putrid turd riddled straight handers of Bondi prior to the removal of the stink pipe to go on and score mindless waves at Honolulu Bay, Indo, and elsewhere. He's pissed on Trough Man at a rap party, toured with Metallica, represented Australia in skiing, shredded powder, and packed pits on the same day, punched on with one of the most powerful men in Australia, and now he's turned his hand to writing, putting out three novels. Scum Valley is one, Bondi Bali and Beyond is the other, and a Bondi Story is the third. This is an epic journey through underground surfing in the 90s and inner city culture as seen through the eyes of a guy who was there and thereabouts. Not a household name, but a high-end pro nonetheless. And what he lacks in silverware, he more than makes up for with eloquence and one of the most radical lives I've ever heard of. All right, we've got a very special guest on the program today. I'd have to say he's probably my introduction to surfing and surf culture back in the beach that I grew up in. Uh, he had the surf store on the corner there of Campbell Parade and Francis Street when me and my mum were renting in Francis Street in South Bondi. Uh, he was an underground icon, a core lord, the highest order, the battler king, uh, kind of Bondi's answer in ways to someone maybe like Kobe Aberdeen, if that helps you understand his role in our community. Uh, rode for Dahui, 
uh, competed in you know, a number of events and was part of one of the greatest generations, the greatest generations of Bondi surfing, inner city surfing that has ever existed. Matt Elks, Elksy bra, welcome to Ain't That Swell. Thanks for that great introduction, mate. It's going to be going to take a lot to live up to that. <laughs> You've already lived up to it. It's all in the past, mate. Well, I like to think that, um, yeah, I'm just another piece of moss and a log, mate. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of great people come through Bondi and for that matter, the surfing fraternity over years. And it's just to be good to be part of it, you know. Yeah, and I mean, one thing I didn't mention is that you're actually an author of two novels, which is pretty incredible, uh, both loosely based around Bondi. Scum Valley is the title of the first one, and the second one, which I've got my hands on at the moment, is uh, a Bondi story. And, you know, they're both basically barely fictionalized accounts is what I would, how I'd describe them. Like it's fiction, but it's, you know, it's similar to train spotting, I guess, if anyone's ever read that by Irvine Welsh, where, you know, he's kind of fictionalized just enough of his own story to avoid uh, getting a lawsuit or a, a schooner over the head. And um, the stories, the yarns are just rip roarers that take place in a seedy, seething inner city surf community uh, back in the days before the glut of foreign capital came into the suburb. So pretty interesting read. And, mate, I, I guess I'm interested to know before we get into your story um, how you picked up the skills to write. You know, you're a Tyler by trade, but you have an incredible command of language and, and prose, which, you know, I, I spent years. It took me as long to learn how to write as it did to surf. It's not an easy trade to get a handle on how did you kind of cobble together the skills to become a really proficient writer? Well, I was very lucky as a, as a kid. Um, I went to Waverley college, uh, which was a, a great school, but then I actually, my dad was a huge punter. So I'd see him win and lose a million dollars in a day. Now I had all my surfing fraternity friends, mainly the Weber brothers um, at Cranbrook school and all I wanted to do was hang out with them. So um, I had a bit of an altercation with a brother at um, Waverley College. And um, I went to Lord Howe Island because we used to billet a guy named Rodney Giles, uh, who's one of the uh, boys from the island. And I stayed at his parents' place and hung out and surfed for the holidays. And I came back and my father said, go into your room, I got a surprise for you. And I, I, I was in oh, third form. Uh, I don't know what they call it, year whatever now, but um, I was in third form and uh, I went into my bedroom and there was a Cranbrook uh, school uniform. <laughs> so um, I had the privilege to be able to go to an excellent school and um, I don't know, just English, you know, uh, it, it pressed my button from the start. Um, I was also part of a debating team at Waverley and, and I I really like to articulate and get my words right. Not that I'm much good at that anymore, but, um, you know, uh, so I, I had this love of the English language from an early age. And what happened was that expanded into me writing uh, small surfing essays and articles for things like tracks and waves 
I ended up getting a gig later in life. I was 16 years at um, Surfing World Japan, uh, writing a monthly column there. And plus, you know, just I, I used to write. I, I didn't even write thinking it was ever going to be published, but it was great that I did because it was something that I could use as reference um, in my books and that and later in life. Mm, I love that, man. And it's one of the things I love about you and where we grew up in a sense. Uh, it's an eclectic place. It produces eclectic people, you know, uh, people like y- yourself and myself who, you know, in our heady youth, we w- were you know, prone to exchanging blows in back streets and bar brawls, but, you know, also didn't mind uh, sitting down with a Pinot Grigio and a, a long cigarette and <laughs> Riding into the night, you know, it's, I guess that's the, the strange combination of influences in the suburb. Uh, as you mentioned, you went to Waverley, as did I, and then uh, got a gig up there at, at Cranbrook alongside the Webbers. And Monty Webber is an incredible writer. He, his book, Excellent. Random, random uh, what is it? Random ta- Ratbag Rogues and Random Tales. Yeah, I've, his latest one, which is Bondi Days and Obituary, um, he sent that over to me just recently, and I just I read that, and it's it's a it's a a thrilling journey through his eyes of actually growing up from uh, being that young grommet that we all were, and um, actually he's recorded a lot of great Bondi history there, and just the evolution of, of surfing in Bondi, um, and of course touches about the evolution in Australia as well, but. He's written a few books. Um, his uh, We Were on Fire, which was about uh, Bondi days and um, the uh, uh, and, and basically just the surfing culture back then and just the decadence and everything else. And look, he, his brother Dan um, is also uh, quite a good writer. Um, he came out with a um, a series of books called Bondi Stories. And they're a compilation of, of different people's memories and, uh, of course, stories of, of uh, back in the heydays of, of, of their days in Bondi. And, you know, uh, the Weber family, mate, I've got a lot of time for them. I grew up with them. Uh, they inspired me um, in a lot of ways to be the person that I am. Uh, they were like, I was like the seventh Weber. I wouldn't leave their house at Rose Bay until their dad kicked me out. And I'd hide from him. <laughs> it was a big house. But I remember walking in there and seeing bronze sculptures and abstracts and Brett Whiteley's and, and you know, they're related to Albie Fowlson and, uh, you know, Witzig and all that crew. So there was a, a huge vein of creativity running through that family. And I think that's quite evident with Monty's filmmaking uh, uh, with Greg's shaping of course shaping the stars shapes slater's boards and 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 many other great surfers he used to shape mine at some stage and I, i've really got to give him uh, a lot of recognition for helping me with my earlier surfing i mean sometimes he gave me these banana boards and they didn't work but um once in a while they did and and your surfing really progressed on them you had to be a good enough surfer to surf them but yeah um so that that whole family um, right through to the, the kids, uh, Will and Ben. I mean, Ben won the 87 uh, Australian junior title, I think. Uh, Will's a shaper in his own. Um, yeah, it was great family to um, waltz through life with, and especially in those early years. 
um, you know, they inspired me. Random Rogues and Ratbag Tales, that Monty Weber book is, you know, I don't want to make this all about Bondi because a lot of this stuff is, is, mate, this book just stands alone as a ripping read. It's so heavy though. It's the content is rattling to the point that I had to put it down for a while and I'm no shrinking violet. You know, I fucking grew up in a very heady, uh, violent, drug-infused scene in the inner city. But this book is really raw, man. Like, you know, some heavy tales of hardcore degeneracy that really are almost hard to get through. Um, and, you know, I, I draw parallels with this kind of literature with basically the only stuff I've... Well, it's very much like a Bukowski book. It's very much like... Um, an Irvine Welsh book in terms of just the, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction. Like um, the weirdest shit, the, the most gripping, compelling shit, it, it actually happened. And so it's better just to document it and change a few, a few names here and there and maybe, um, you know, caricature or exaggerate scenes here and there. But you don't have to add too much color to the truth for it to stand out and be super weird. Um, yeah. So it, it is an interesting contrast you know to be a part of this seemingly this cone smoking seemingly unthinking surf culture uh and then at the same time be able to just completely do a 180 and document it all in the finest of pros and put it out there for public consumption it's a fucking rad skill and um I'm, I'm, it's ironically very much in that same vein that same genre of relaying my experiences generally in the surf world um, and, and just relaying them to the public and, and, and getting access to people like yourself and, and if all the way up to Kelly Slater and beyond and, and relaying their stories to the public, just making sure that, yeah, keep the narrative going, keep the culture going, keep the stories going, keep the oral history going. It's very important. And there's a, there's a great art to not incriminating anyone. <laughs> and I think that um, at, at the beginning of all my books, I have, uh, I have a little bit of a statement which actually goes, this book is a complete and total fiction. Any resemblance between the characters in this narrative and real people, either living or dead, is either complete and total coincidence or more often deliberate misrepresentation for the purpose of humorous defamation of old friends. <laughs> Nobody in the real world, including the author, is remotely guilty of any of the acts and practices committed by the wild fantasy characters of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well and I think that, that gets you off the hook straight away. So I put that at the front of every one of my books. <laughs> so good. All right, well, let's go back to the beginning of your story, Elksy. I mean, tell us a bit about your old man. Uh, he's from Marylands in, in Western Sydney and, uh, as, as I understand, was booted out of home at a young age and moved to a boarding house right next to Randwick Racetrack. Yes, um, my, my father was one of a kind. I suppose that's why my recently passed mother um, never got married again. Very flamboyant, um, very over the top in a lot of ways, um, very abusive and violent when um, depressed, which I think you find a lot of people get like. Um, but of course, when he was winning at the track 
and things were working well, um, you couldn't meet a nicer guy. And, um, you know, my father, he was brought up um, at the, he was born in 20, 1929, I think. And so he was brought up in the depression. Now, what happened, which severely affected him later in life, because he never knew, is that he never knew who his real mother was. And she happened to be the first person to ever commit suicide off the Harbour Bridge. And um, when, later in life, when he was uh, manic depressant uh, because of several factors and that um, gambling being one, but mainly being ripped off by other people, um, he went into this depressed state and my mother was doing the ancestry and uh, discovered that paper clipping about her. Now, his, his father never talked about it. He, of course, he had a stepmom. They had more children. He was like the eldest and alienated. She never really liked him that much. So when his dad was in, in New Guinea fighting at Milne Bay in, uh, for our freedom um, uh, against the Japanese, he was in a boarding school at, um, in the Blue Mountains, supposedly. And he just wrote a note one day and somehow slipped it to the headmaster um, and jumped out the window and basically went to Ramwick. It was about 14 or 15, found a boarding house, um, living out of the seat of his pants and that, and just started patronising the racetrack. And over the years, he became a, a really good horseman in the way that, I mean, uh, his brothers, his stepbrothers and that ended up becoming trainers, et cetera, and bookies. His dad was head of the Western Suburbs Bookmaking Association. So there was this rich vein of gambling already. So he um, he got to know horses. He used to get uh, all the black and white prints before video and that. I remember in the 70s, I'd go to the bathroom at, at 3 o'clock in the morning and his bed lamp would be on and he'd be studying the sportsmen and races and horses he knew all the criminal fraternity which was involved. He A lot of the times he knew what horses, or at least the signs of what horses weren't going to be trying. He knew a few jockeys. They pretty much will send you broke. Um, but in the end, um, you know, he basically lived on the racetrack. And um, I've got to say that it was a, a, a great, uh thing in the way that i used to work for him off and on and the excitement at, at any racetrack okay when there's big dollars and there's jockey silks of all colors and and thoroughbreds you know steaming down the straight you know for the finish line i mean um you'd have to be a pretty drab person if that didn't kind of get your your blood uh going you know so yeah i was really fortunate to see all that but again my old man, he didn't do much with me. Uh, he supported me in a lot of ways. He tried to make up for his violent ways and that when he uh, had uh, wins and that, he'd take us overseas. He'd um, splash my mother with gifts and take us to restaurants. But, you know, really, um, like yourself, it was kind of a, a pretty up and down um, uh uh, childhood, and fortunately, my, my father was never into drugs. He was he was a big drinker, um, but yeah. So um, <laughs> I kind of found drugs by myself. <laughs>
at an early age. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it was kind of a bit of an escapism thing, but I'm not I'm not blaming anything for um, you know what I I've made certain in my life. I've made choices. Some of them been you know good. Some of them been bad. But the main thing is is that you learn. You know I've got to 61. Um, I'm still learning. Uh, I like to keep that uh, fresh sheet every day. And write down kind of what was my lesson today. Um, yeah, I, you never stop learning. Oh, I love that. And, you know, it's an interesting rags to riches tale with your old man. I mean, obviously come into some money and was able to put you through an elite private school, but, uh, you know, having a father who was raised on a racetrack and in boarding houses and bordellos and fuck knows what in uh the inner city in the the 1930s and 40s i mean that guy is always going to have uh some, some baggage some quirks <laughs> some, baggage. some quirks yeah. And, yeah some baggage and uh you know it was really sad that, that he ended his life exactly as his mother did pretty much driving uh, a car off a cliff yeah. and, uh, taking his own life. Yeah, well, that's part of, you know, that that's when you lose your purpose in life, yeah? Like his mother was um, post-traumatic, you know, postnatal trauma. Um, my grandfather, um, God bless his soul, was a travelling salesman, so he was always off in the bush. I'm pretty sure he had affairs out there and stuff like that. My grandmother, my real grandmother was at home, um, tending a young child. Um, yeah, and, you know, uh, my father, what ended up causing that was that he was told to not go into racetracks because he had to declare himself officially bankrupt because someone in a car yard out at Greenacre who he had as a partner, he was too trusting to, and ended up ripping him blind, and the finance company ended up folding the car yard, and he had a property down uh, near Jindabyne on the Barry Way, which he loved. He loved the mountains. It was like his escapism from the city and the stress and everything. And he lost that. So he lost everything. And that was his purpose in life. You know, I had kind of grown I was 24. My sister was 19. Um, you know, we had already flown the coop, um, you know. And so he was dealing with... Um, a bit of nihilism, you know, and I think that you see suicide a lot uh, when people end up adapting that frame of mind. Um, it's very important that people uh, understand that having a purpose, having goals are probably the most, just as important as anything else in, in life. Yeah, uh, and that generation, they just had so few coping mechanisms up their sleeve. I mean, really, it, it came down to self-medicating with usually alcohol uh, to deal with trauma and stuff like that. You know, I guess they had the church, uh, you know, praying can be helpful. But, yeah, you know, in the, the generations that have come since then, we've been fortunate enough to get an insight into Eastern religions and ways of life and, you know, look into meditation and yoga and breath work and, and all these kind of ways of keeping you alive and, and keeping you on path and out of habits of violence and alcohol and, and drug abuse. But that shit just wasn't really around uh, during your, your father's time. That's we've we've sure. been really lucky. 
um, in the period of time that we've been on the planet, um, you know, as much as that I don't agree with a lot of um, aspects of globalization, um, you know, there's been some great information relayed from different parts of the planet, which are from different individual, magnificent individuals and that which we've been able to uh, put our hands on or, or at least watch um, and, and gain insights into, um, you know, different things which make us individually tick. So, yeah, um, they didn't have that stuff back then. And as you said, the bottle was always handy and it was socially acceptable. Uh, I mean, it was socially acceptable, you know, when, and it still is. But, um, yeah, they didn't have very many other alternatives back then. So, yeah, and, you know, let's face it, it's hard enough to work life out with people and coping mechanisms around you supporting you, let alone, you know, being uh, almost an orphan, living by yourself and just kind of making it work each day without uh, much of an education or, or too much knowledge. You know, so, um, yeah, yeah, um, we're, we're very lucky that we've lived in the age that we have. It's been a, 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 an enlightening period. Absolutely. And talk to us a bit about surfing. Uh, you mentioned before, you know, you were the seventh Weber. You were often taking refuge around at their joint during your old man's bouts of uh, erratic behaviour. Uh, and I imagine seeking refuge in the water out the front at Bondi. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, uh, the beach to many people have always has been an escape. Um, and I think that it's also been an extension to travelling and um, uh, basically finding purpose. Um, you know, to, to actually be riding um, and balancing on a moving slope of water, um, it almost sounds, you know, uh, spiritual and um you know the one thing that we do have is an innate um sense or instinct within us that we are part of nature and i think that surfing and that's why it's so popular today really connects with that uh back in our day um late 60s 70s uh 80s um it was frowned upon it was uh anti-establishment it was rebellious um, but, you know, uh, that was what was so fascinating about it. You were part of this subculture that, um, you know, highlighted uh, the opposite um, meaning to life than what, you know, uh, 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 society was actually pushing. So, you know... We, we were watching films like Morning of the Earth and Crystal Voyager, and we were just imagining and dreaming of a life um, totally opposed to uh, the nine-to-five grind. And a lot of us followed it. <laughs> a lot of us got hung up on drugs and kind of like lost 20 years and then looked back and went, fuck, <laughs> look at that wreckage. But, um, yeah, there was some of us who even did that and still found uh, what we were looking for. And I, I think that's typical in what I've done um, because, uh, you know, I think that uh, I was, I kind of sometimes 
if I can, I, I, um, I compare myself with the, the white savage in, uh, in Huxley's Brave New World, um, you know, someone who, who just didn't see eye to eye with social norms and wanted to look for a more um, uh, humble, more, more peaceful, more uh, less stressful life. And I suppose that's why I ended up here. Yeah, and here is the north side of Bali, the kind of forgotten coastline on the island. Uh, you've been there for, I don't know how long, at least a decade. Uh, you've got a, a humble little establishment that I've been to and spent a few nights at. And uh, it's a remarkable place that you've created for yourself. It, it remi- You mentioned Huxley's White Savage. I likened you to uh, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. You've just gone <laughs> way up river, living with the natives, and uh, you've carved out a slice of paradise and a, a, a kind of a utopian set of ideas and visions for creating this kind of eco-sustainability hub up there where you're living. You've got misto little waves that kind of turn on in some of the, the short period wind swells and, and storm swells that erupt in that narrow gully of water there and then you've got obviously access to a lot of the the, the world-class waves on the east coast of bali but yeah it's it, it i totally get what you're saying and i'm well on my way to establishing a very similar lifestyle and i think it also comes with the territory of having uh, a pretty significant dose of ptsd and you know you, you kind of aren't really resilient enough to deal with all of the stupid stresses that are typical of the materialist consumerist suburban way of life. Like I just don't have it in me to be able to put up with that shit like healthy normals maybe can. Well, I think, I think it's more than that. I think it's a, like almost a dystopian kind of world these days. Um, you know, wh- whoever's guiding the global agenda has definitely got it wrong. And, um, you know, I, I suppose a lot of people envy their, ancestors um, whose peace was only gently disturbed by the news of the village and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, um, I think it was James Lovelock, um, that one of uh, the guy who actually uh, developed the Gaia theory of life on Earth in the 60s, who said, uh, we need to retreat. Um, And I think um, in saying that, he was challenging science and, and kind of saying, um, you know, there's a darker side to science and, you know, I have to tend to agree. Um, you know, uh, to me, science just seems to be a new means of achieving old ideas, you know, or old ends. And, you know, the trading of goods, the pursuit of one sex by the other, overcoming the challenges of competition, the fighting of wars, um, you know, and there was a recent discouraging discovery or awakening um, that, you know, science will kill for us as readily as it will heal us and it will destroy for us as readily as it can build for us. So, I mean, you know, when it comes to science, there's a big irony there, you know, there's a, definitely a paradox, a big contradiction when it comes to, to what is real progress, you know. I mean, my relationship with science is simply through the podcasts I consume and the amount of scientific literature that is available that is being brought to the surface by 
key actors, say uh, Andrew Huberman with the Huberman Lab podcast, Drew Peroit, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, Joe Rogan, uh, Paul Check, Aubrey Marcus. These guys are all bringing up this kind of deep well of scientific literature that is able to educate us on on what's good for our bodies and, and, and how to live appropriately, what kind of uh, substances and sustenance uh, that we need to, to survive and thrive and prosper. Um, that's my only real relationship to science and I value it. Well, strength that. to those guys, strength to those guys, mate, because, you know, we need, we need the truth seekers. We need the guys who get on podcasts and you, you're like it yourself. You're, you're trying to find out the truth of, uh, uh, of whatever you're into. And, and the thing is, is that it, it's so refreshing to have individuals, you know, um, like those you, you just spoke of, um, um, yourself included, so many people who are out there and they're trying to, you know, uh, portray life through um, different perspectives than uh, big media. And and what it does is, is it uncovers a lot of truths. And uh, that's why, you know, these people with these podcasts and that are so interesting because people are just going, fuck, I never knew that. You know, like how rad's that? Because, the, you know, most science, when you look at it, most science is funded and it's funded to yeah. give a uh, to pretty much say what the people who are funding it wants it to say. <laughs> so not necessarily true, <laughs> you know. We need people to filtrate it <laughs> and kind of work out, you know, um, you know the the the, uh, the actual essence of of what is being kind of examined. That's right. And and that's the beauty of all those actors I just mentioned who run those podcasts is that that's exactly what they're doing. They're basically, uh, they have access to the deep well of scientific resources. And, you know, it takes 20 years for things to come from the scientific community, uh, which, you know, things can be accepted scientific fact, and it will take 20 years for it to reach the mainstream media. Uh, there's this incredible lag that's for sure deliberate, um it just probably allows the market and all the investment to catch up with the errors that they've made and you know 20 years of, of 20 years of yeah. dodgy science we've consumed the wrong thing we've barked uh, up the wrong tree for, for 20 years and there's lawsuits and all kinds of things that need to be settled so i guess that's i don't know I, these are all reasons for the lag but I don't want to get too too deep into that topic i want to go back into surfing and uh the age that you grew up in was basically the golden age of Bondi surfing. Uh, you know, you had from the beach at the time uh, you were coming up and even as an adult, you had, you know, 93 world champ Pauline Mensah, you had four time world title runner up Shane Haran. You had the iconic rail surfer, Richie Cram. You had his brother, Paul Cram. You had Dave Davo, yourself, Bruce Raymond, the, the Weber brothers, Bill Powers. Uh, you know, these are all top, top line pros from more or less the same generation, uh, maybe a few years either side. Uh, you know, what are your memories of that period and, and how competitive it was and, and any thoughts on, on what spawned such a incredible generation of pro surfers from a, a shitty inner city beach with pretty poor quality waves? 
Well, I think um, in general, um, it was all about frothing. Um, you know, the person who was frothing the most <laughs> was probably going to get the most waves, of course. Um, you're subjected to a hierarchy, of course, but, you know, the, the more you're frothing and the better you got, um, the higher elevated you were in the hierarchy. Now, some people just came and fitted straight into the upper echelon of that. Guys like Shane and stuff on that. I remember watching Horan um, as a kid just on those Dublin McCoy single fins. Uh, surfed a lot with Joe, Joey Engel. And mm -hmm. uh, and they were just ripping. People like uh, uh, Zappa, Dominic Wybrow. You had people like Cole Sutherland, Brad Mays, my uncle, um, who was even before that generation, Robert Keneally. He had the surf shop there, which was, you know, like a, a magnet for us Groms. We'd go down there. He had the Balinese seagrass matting. He was in Bali in the 70s and he was at the forefront or, you know, he was checking the frontier out around the world um, before, uh, you know, most. So um, it had a lot of great, um, it had a, a, a lot of uh, great stuff attached to that surf shop. Like I remember I walked in there one day and Kanga was in there, who I'm now very good friends with, Ann Cairns, who lives in California. He was in there. I got talking to him and the next minute he shaped me a 6'6 Kanga single fin. I suppose it was about 78 or something like that. Um, which was an amazing board. And it, the thing was about riding a longer board because everyone was riding, you know, six twos or six footers or five tens or whatever. Um, it really uh, taught me how to go from rail to rail and put it and hold an extended rail, um, which really improved my surfing. But I've got to say that the McCoy uh, double enders were probably the most popular board at Bondi back then. And that was mainly because uh, Victor Ford had a surf shop up at the junction. And of course, McCoy would be full of new McCoys on the rack. Uh, you know, it's just like walking into, you know, Disneyland, uh, Hollywood and seeing all those boards and that when you're a grommet just going, oh, I wish I had some money. <laughs> but, you know, eventually you do end up with one of those boards, whether you've had to put it back together or, you know, um, someone stole it and sold it to you at, you know, 10 bucks or or whatever. Um, and, you know, you eventually uh, get on that proven product. And, um, yeah, so that's why they were so popular because as far as I'm concerned, they made Shane the surfer he was. They made, um, you know, Joe the surfer he was. Uh, a lot of people were on him and a lot of people were ripping. Um, you know, so... Looking back at, um, you know, Panache, all those guys, um, you had Steve Corrigan, you had Brad Mays, you had uh, Cole Sutter, you had a host yeah. of great surfers. Um, they were inspiring to all us grommets, and that's what we wanted to be. It didn't matter how we were going to get there, but, you know, we were definitely going to end up, um, you know, surfing for the rest of our days. And it's funny how things turn out, isn't it? But um, 
So the next thing was that you had the younger guys like Zappa and Joey Engel and, and Shane and Cramming, Dion Gaddis. Uh, uh, all these guys were like, uh, they were, Shane used to describe it as that those older guys, they go out into the world and into competition and they learn and, and gain expertise and they come back to the beach and they create a vacuum for the younger guys to kind of filter up through and become as good, if not better, than those guys. And that kind of basically happened at Bondi. So all those guys that I mentioned who were younger and that, they all came up through the ranks, but it was only because of those old guys, older guys, uh, you know, and that's why I suppose in the surfing world, especially in the older surfing fraternity, there was always a huge respect for your elders. Now, I... I was a late starter because, believe it or not, I was in the Australian ski team <laughs> in 78 uh, um, and I lived in Aspen for three years and I pursued my amateur career over there uh, as a ski racer and did quite well. I was actually um, pitted in FIS races, which were international races, and skied against guys like Ingemar Stenmark, Phil and Steve Mayer, uh, all the Boris Krijav, all these legends from back then. Of course, I was a few seconds slower than them, but I was... did you say Ingemar Denmark? That guy was an no, icon. Ingemar Stenmark. <laughs> Sorry, Ingemar Stenmark. Yeah, what an absolute, uh, what a boss, one of the real OGs of slalom skiing. Oh, unbelievable. The, the, the peak, he was like the Franz Klammer. I don't know if anyone knows who Franz Klammer was, but he was um, the ultimate. Oh, um, German downhiller, like he took on Kitzbühel and the Harnenkahn in there one year. There's Go to it on YouTube if you in, like anything about skiing or the Alps. Um, Franz Klammer, and he, I think it was late 70s or maybe even early 80s, he had one run on that downhill, which has gone down in history. Uh, he won the event. Um um, but it was like he was out on a wing and a prayer for the whole thing. And that course, I've never skied it myself, but Steve Lee, uh, our ex-Olympic uh, ski racer, a very good old mate of mine and that has, and told me about it. And um, it's like uh, <laughs> steep as steep. So, you know, those guys, um, yeah, to be around, I never was around Franz Klammer, but I was around Stenmark and Phyllis Sivmer and a lot of the ladies um, uh, team and that. They used to come to Threadbo uh, in their summer and train on the ice there because we got a lot of ice being Australia and it really sharpened your uh, level of skiing to ski and race gates or train gates on, on ice because it... Well, that makes sense. Well, it does because it's the, probably the hardest condition that you have to race in. So if you train on it, then anything else is um, becomes easier. And I think that's, um, you know, why they used to come because as much as that it was only a short winter, they were able to come down for a month or so. There was a couple of FIS races. We used to have a downhill at Threbo. Um, you know, we had guys like Kim Clifford and uh, Pricey and, and uh, uh, Davin Timms. We had all these great um, uh, skiers back then that no one really ever heard of. We had, we had a guy who was one of my best mates called David Studley, 
And he actually won the Junior World Olympics slalom and giant slalom in 1980, I think it was, over in Vermont. And I think he got a a four-line write-up in the Australian paper. Like, you know, can you imagine that? an Australian winning the Junior Olympics, and he got no coverage at all. I suppose it just went to show, you know, um, how little sports media there was um, for that type of thing back there. But we had some amazing races back then. I I haven't really kept up with it. I'm sure there's some good kids coming up, but we had a good infrastructure back then as far as the racing clubs at Perisher, Threbo, um, Hotham, Buller and that were all very strong and it was very competitive. So we ended up with a lot of good uh, races. Yeah, and later on in life, I remember you moved down that way, didn't you? And you were kind of going between the ski fields and Marimbula, Pambula, that kind of zone. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun in the way that um, I had a, I've got a good mate named Perny. Um, who I, I used to hang out with a lot down there and, and Nilo and that. And what we used to do was that I think Ross ended up doing it, um, RCJ at some stage and that as well. We'd snowboard because I ended up becoming a snowboarder because of Critter Burn and his uh, surf snow skate shop down south. He said, Matt, try these snowboards because, I mean, I was an avid skier, as you can imagine. And um, he... he changed my whole perspective on snowboarding and, and that was early 90s. I was hanging out with Critter and Horan and we were all going snowboarding together. But, yeah, we used to um, snowboard powder on a low pressure and then drive down and surf that Arvo at Pambula um, or the next morning at Pambula Rivermouth and be getting barreled. So, um, you know, that was kind of fun, just following the same low pressure and, you know, getting that buzz again from NATO, which is something that, you know, is pretty, you can't surpass that buzz. You know, nature is where it's at. I've always believed that, you know, I'm involved heavily with sustainability and eco projects. And to me, um, yeah, James Lovelock was right. We need to kind of pull up a little bit, have a bit of a moratorium on all of it and see what's really doing us good and what's uh, not, because in the end, if our environment isn't healthy, then how can you ever expect us to be healthy? Well said. And uh, I love that, Elksie. I mean, so few people in the world will have experienced powder and getting barreled on the same day. Like that is, especially in the <laughs> 90s, that is iconic, mate. Well done. Yeah, well, I tell you what, um, it, it's interesting too because when I when I went to Aspen in 80, 81 or something and I had a girlfriend back in Oz and, um, you know, I had to pay 1200 bucks to Aspen ski team and my ex-coach wasn't there and no, no, no. So I just went, fuck it. And I, I hitched to LA <laughs> from Aspen, which is about 2,000 miles. <laughs> my stuff down uh, with a carrier or whatever and then hitched. That was a, a story in itself. I remember it was when John Lennon was assassinated because I went through LA, I mean uh, Las Vegas, and that was on the newsstands. But I, I got to LA and it was great. You know, here I was, a, a, an Aussie with an Aussie accent and all these valley girls and valley boys and all these surfers and 
heaps of parties, and that's where I started tiling, actually. But um, I met a big guy named Greg Gearin, and he was a linebacker for UCLA. And his mum had a holiday house down in Maui uh, near Lahaina. And all these guys I was hanging out with who were friends with him and that were going down there for a few weeks. And it was winter. Uh, I suppose it was Jan, you know. Um, and he liked me so much that he took me under his wing and he just said, you want to come down early with me? Let's go tomorrow. And you don't have to pay any money. I'll look after you. And I just went, unreal, man. He said, I've got boards and shit's. So we just flew down to Maui <laughs> and we were surfing Honolulu. I was getting buffed. It was the first time I ever saw um, someone using a vac food seal uh, machine to compress buds. Oh, well played. <laughs> this guy we were getting buds off in Lahaina was, uh, uh, was, had one and was like, fuck, man, this is the new modern way, you know. <laughs> I'd always just got tie sticks wrapped onto a, a stick or, you know, foilies or whatever. So anyway, or bags of duckweed. So anyway, we were surfing Honolulu and it was just fucking amazing. We were surfing windmills around and then we ended up going down to uh, Hana, which is down the south of the island. We went up through all the limestone caves. You'd go into a cave which had water in it and swim in. And then just with a little light, you'd go up through these different uh, openings and tunnels and then you'd come up like 200, 300, 400 metres above where you actually went in. And uh, that was a trip. But, yeah, that was magic time, a lot of magic mushies too. And then um, that got me a real taste for Hawaii. And um, I got back to Oz. I had been – I got seventh in the state at Merriweather in about 78 Coro won the event. It was the New South Wales titles or something. So I showed a little bit of promise. Um, and so when I got back, Greg Weber was shaping for Hot Butted. And um, I was surfing all right. And um, Greg said, I'll get you a sponsorship with Terry. So that happened. And then I went up to Angari. I was surfing up there and I was hanging at uh, Grub Dalberg's place. And I a guy named Richard Langdon, who was New Zealand Kiwi champ, along with Ratso and that, was staying with Grub because Grub's a Kiwi. And um, he said, why don't you come over and do the comps in New Zealand? You can hang out with me and blah, 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 blah. So the next minute I'm on a plane over there and I go in my first comp. Uh, Paul Cram was there. Um, I remember pulling bongs in a car and <laughs> in the car park with him. I love Paul uh, and Richard and their eldest brother, Dave, amazing family, uh, solid Bondi family. Yeah, I was close to Paul. I ended up coming third in the in the event and it was man on man and that. So that was like, bang, fuck, man, I can do this. So um, I, I came back from New Zealand and uh, they started running a couple of ads for me and shit like that. And I went in the Bow Repairs trials and Bell's trials and, I remember driving down to Bell's in my old hot Tirana three on the floor, or was it on the, I can't remember, but Shane ended up driving it and um, we had Spot in the back, Spot Anderson. And Shane, we drove at night and Shane was sitting on the tail of these big semis, but he was getting the, the uh, what is it, the wind, um, the wind tunnel. So, you know, we were, hardly had the foot on the gas 
and we're just getting hurdled behind these big lorries. And, um, you know, fucking crazy Shane. But anyway, we finally up getting up there. I remember I went and saw Joey Ingle and um, he was staying in the caravan park there. I think Brett Hodge was staying in the caravan park as well. Uh, Nick Carroll was there. Nick was always a great guiding light to me, as was Derek Hine being HB boys, Robbie Hale, a um, few others there. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I went and saw Joey in the caravan. We caught up, as old mates do. And then he went on to win the trials and then win the comp that year. And I, I was just delighted that I'd been hanging out with him prior comp and to see him do so well. After that, um, 1984 was my, I was old by then. I was 24 uh, or 23. But um, what had happened was that I had a few ski racing years in there between. So it kind of pushed me into that pro kind of am circuit a bit later than most. So 23, I'm hitting Hawaii. Well, I was hanging out with David Cantrell at Rocky Point. Uh, I got to meet the Willis brothers through Shane. Uh, incredible spiritual beings, those two. Uh, I don't think, yeah, Pagey might have been there. Um, Pagey, me and Shane hung out a lot in Hawaii. Uh, Johnny Orr, who's head of the North Shore Band, I started to meet all the Hui guys, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that ended up becoming a lifelong um, trend and uh, friendships that are still existing today, of course. But, yeah, that 83-84 season was my introduction to the North Shore. I had um, I had an amazing uh, month and a half there. Fitzy shaped my boards. Um, it was from then on in that I knew Hawaii was going to be a big part of my surfing life. Yeah, and Hawaii did play a massive role in your career uh, on one of those early trips over there. You ended up making a connection with fast Eddie Rothman, and you guys kind of come up with an agreement where you would be the Australasian license holder, I believe, for Dahui. Can, can you can you talk us through meeting Eddie and how that deal all came about? Um. Yeah. Well, that, that's a good story. Um. I was actually hanging out at Michael. Willis's place on Sunset Point. It was kind of almost on backyards. And um, he had his shaping bay out the back. You'd have Liam McNamara, Jason Majors. You'd have Johnny Boy, have everyone coming around there. They were all riding his boards. Um, and I just kind of said, this is early 90s, uh, so it's a little time later. Um, I said to Michael, I said, look, can you introduce me to Eddie? You know, I, I've got my surf shop over in Oz now and I want to get some stock in it, you know. Um, no one's got the hooey stock there, blah, blah, blah. And he went, Michael being the uh, direct character that he is, just went, Elsie, you want to meet Eddie? Just go round to his house and knock on his door. <laughs> so basically, uh, Eddie... It's got a nice big house around over um, at back between backyards and Velsey. So I went around there and kind of edged past his rot wheelers and, and everything else. Went and, and the big, he's got a big gym downstairs and that with bags and everything like that. Uh, you know, the boys have always been fit and um, they can always hold their hands up. 
And uh, I knocked on his door and uh, funny enough, Eddie answered it. Um, and he's just gone, yeah, who are you? And I just went, yeah, I'm Matt Elks, man. I I'm from Bondi. Uh, I'm a competitive surfer. I've got a surf and skate shop there. I really love your brand and some of the stuff you're bringing out. It's got a really good uh, ocean message of keeping, you know, the ocean clean, et cetera. I said, um, I'd love to grab some stock and take it back with me. Or, or, And then he's just gone, yeah, come, come on in. So we had a bit of a chat and uh, kind of learned a bit about me. And then um, a couple of days later, he took my number um, and I had a phone call someone took from me and, and said, oh, Eddie wants you to go to his joint. So I went down to his joint and the next minute I'm in a, in a, a his pickup van um, heading over to Honolulu to where they had their manufacturing operation. And uh, I went in and met Clyde Eichel and I met um, Brian Amona and uh, a few of the other uh, heavyweights. And uh, he said, out of the blue, I'm thinking about giving Matt the license for over there. And then someone said, well, I thought you were giving that to Quicksilver and Bruce Raymond. And Eddie just blatantly said, well, I don't see Bruce Raymond here. And uh, so that was it. And uh, so we worked out. He sent over all the artwork and stuff, and I ended up getting a manufacturer at Tari, um, called Fab Art. Tari's got a bit of history with me. Um, my mum grew up at Old Bar and um, the guy who, um, uh, what, what was that company's name? Yeah, was it Hot Tuna coming out of Tari? Uh, anyway, um, yeah, he uh, he's related somehow. But anyway, so I went up to Tari and I said, uh, I got this guy, he said he'd print my shirts, he'd give me some credit and this and I had no money, man. I mean, fuck, I was as broke as I ever was. As you know, guys used to come to my shop and say, Elsie, can I get some credit, please, please? I mean, fuck, I didn't know how to say no. <laughs> so, and, and you know, as far as deals were concerned, someone had come in and offered me 450 for a $500 board and just to get money in the bank and keep them happy, you know, I'd just go, yeah, mate, no worries. So I wasn't a great businessman, you know, and all of a sudden I've got this license. So I ended up um, borrowing off Peter to pay Paul and et cetera, et cetera. And I ended up having uh, a couple of – I went to I went to Bali, or I went came here, and I, I sussed Kasim out because – Sim and I had been mates for years since uh, he lived in Randwick in the early 80s and went out with girlfriends um, that I, I were good friends with and stuff. So we became good mates. And then he ended up in Newcastle with Mort Brits um, and Magoo and their mum, and they looked after him. So I had a good – yeah. And just, just, just to – just a quick note on uh, who Mare Kasim is. Mare Kasim, a.k.a. Manku Kasim, uh, you know, the owner of Single Fin, Bali's first professional surfer, uh, an absolute heavyweight in the history of Indonesian surfing, Balinese surfing, and still to this day, his shadow looms large, let me tell you, over that island. Um, he was the, the Dahui license holder in Indo, I guess. Uh, he was very tight with Eddie Rothman as well. He, he set up 
Um, I was, I, yeah, I guess he set up the black shorts there in Indo for a bit, in Bali for a bit with Eddie, um, which didn't last very long, thankfully. But uh, an icon, fuck, I did not know he lived in Randwick. That is comical. I've, I actually had a, a big hand in, in working with Mare uh, when I came back later. But uh, I already knew his operations because, as I said, I, uh, about 95 or 96, I came over um, and wanted to get the stuff made in Indo because it was a lot cheaper than getting it made at Fab Art. And what I did is that I met this guy over here um, who ended up, he was an old mate of mine, and he wanted to throw money in investment. And I brought him in. And what happened was that that all ended up festering. And unfortunately, um, I walked out and lost the license and everything. But I, I kind of I respawned um, in 2004, 2005. I came to Bali going on a, on a holiday to Thailand and then G-Land after it and that. And my mate, old mate Shane Horan asked me to go down to uh, Shane Horan School of Surf, which was at Seminyak and tell his partner there that to take his name off all the paraphernalia and brochures because they'd had a fallout. So I went down there being the messenger and his name uh, was Johnny, an astute news, uh, Kiwi businessman, uh, pretty nice bloke. And I just said, mate, sorry, I'm just the messenger. Shane wants this, da, 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 da. And he knew my surfing background, especially being a Kiwi because I'd been successful over there. And he said, do you want a job? And I just went, what do you mean? He said, do you want to be a surf instructor in my surf school? And I said, well, I'm going to Thailand and Geeland and and then I'll be another month floating around Southeast Asia. He said, come back and see me. You've got a job here if you want it. So I was partying after my sword drawn to Thailand and, and surfing Unreal Geeland. And that. I came back, I was hanging out with Bunga Clift, Mark Cliff from WA who I happened to surf a lot with, especially on the WA leg of the APSA in the 80s. And um, I was partying with him and a few guys, and he's, he, I said, you reckon I should stay? And he said, well, what are you going back to? And I didn't have any girl. I didn't have a dog. I didn't have, you know, anything pretty much. My mum was back there, but she was healthy and being looked after. So I went, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So I went and saw him the next day. And he said, okay, there's a business business consultative um, visa, which was a loophole back then. It, for each six months, it had been renewed. I'll send you to Singapore tomorrow. You get it stamped same day and come back and you'll be on the beach early next week working for me. So basically, um, Shane's format, which was a great format he was using, and he's uh, he ended up becoming Ripcall School of Surf and very successful. But I worked for him for oh, six months and it was an amazing time. Um, I was living in a small little uh, house at the, in one of the gangs at the back of Legion. I didn't even bother getting a bike. I had a BMX and I'd just ride around all the gangs and I was quicker than a bike half the time anyway. And, of course, I was uh, footloose and fancy free, so I was partying. Um, had a, a, a few good mates um, who were working with me. And then I, I was hanging out at the back of Mudde's retail shop 
where he had uh, all the Dahui um, uh, factories set up and stuff uh, at the back of Wyon and Friends. And I was hanging out with this guy named Ref. Um, and he was playing guitar all the time. And then, so I saw what Marte was doing and I put a proposition to him that we can get the guests as they get off the plane, put them in your accommodation, uh, put them through your surf school, sell them all your retail, um, you know, and all your wine and French food, et cetera, and, and kind of snag them from the time they put foot on the island to the time they leave. And he thought it was a great idea and basically I ended up being director of the Hui for him and Aloha and all his retail and stuff and wholesale within a couple of weeks. But unfortunately, that bred a lot of resentment. We made a lot of headway, but I kind of inherited something with a lot of nepotism in it and a lot of guys who had, um, you know, had a lazy culture about them. And I kept on saying we're competing with Quicksilver and we're competing with Billabong, et cetera. We have to run a tighter ship. And they kind of resented the white guy, um, you know, giving them barking. Well, I didn't bark, but I I tried to give them some um, direction. I got all the team riders, um, Sachan, et cetera, all those guys, uh, Mukulis Anwar and that, um, who was riding for Dahui then before Volcom and that. I got them all pay rises and I got them uh, higher incentives if they got photos, looked after the team, got the thing. We did a, a promotional video with um, Eddie and Makur and the boys came over. Um, and we we did a, a video with them and and the Bali crew, and um, yeah, I suppose you could have said that was the kind of black short time, but uh, we had a big opening of that um, preview of that movie at Embargo, and that must have been two thousand and five or two thousand and six, and things were going great, and then um, yeah, uh, over time things soured. Um, I tried to bring someone in as a manager and there was constant whinging from people uh, within the, the hierarchy. Um, they weren't happy with me, even though I was uh, making more dollars, retail and wholesale for, for the company. And then, um, yeah, so I ended up just parting ways. I founded a surf school for, for, for Kasim, so I just ended up branching into that and also just looking after his retail because I'd have a lot of experience in retail and I just let them run the other stuff. And then, um, you know, of course, when Eddie and Makura had come over and that and the boys, um, you know, uh, I'd, I'd go over to G-Land with them or I'd take them driving. I actually took them to Sarangan once. We were supposed to go to Karamas and it was heavily onshore. And I went, oh, Karamas would be no good. So we all went home. <laughs> Uh, uh, to Cuda and had a lay day and then um, Jamie O'Brien came back a bit later that morning and, and said, oh, Karamas was just firing and so I pretty much got sacked on the spot as being their driver <laughs> uh, and I just went back and uh, put my head down and, and got and focused on the hui and, and the business back in Legion. But, yeah, um, you know, you've got to make sure your your surf calls are right when it comes to Eddie and the Hui. Otherwise, you can find yourself on the outer fairly quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so. Happens to the best of us, mate. 
Yeah, so anyway, look, my, I, I met my wife around the corner. I mean, I was diligent. I've always been diligent in business. Um, I'd be out the front of the retail in, in Jalan Padma at six in the morning, you know, hosing it and hosing dog shit and, you know, opening it up and getting stuff ready for the day, taking a lot of pride in, in it, of course. And, um, you know, loving the lo being the local uh, bule or, or tamu guest there, which was, you know, um, uh, entwined in business and, and, and society there and and getting a buzz off everything of meeting new people, of, of um, gaining friendships, et cetera, of having the beach, surfing, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. But around the corner... At a, a little restaurant named Indonational, they used to sell. It was run by a couple of uh, Aussies. Um, I think they might have been warned not to ever go back to Australia again. But they were an older couple, and they liked the drink, and they were pretty friendly. But um, uh, they made great steaks. So I met Putu, my wife there, and anyway, um, uh, She'd serve me. She was the best waitress in the place, very friendly, big, broad smile. Then one night I was with um, Paul Coleman, who is from the legendary family, the Coleman brothers. Uh, I think his elder brother, Mark Coleman, they lived in Brighton Boulevard, was the first centrefold for Clio. Um, and they were all involved in Qantas as their dad was. And Mark actually left Qantas in the 80s and built the Noosa Duwada. Uh, charter boat on Limbongan in the 80s and, and he was at the forefront of surf charters in um, in Bali and of course up there with people like Doris and Suli and and all, all those other crew Burton that Burton him were best mates um, so anyway uh, Paul Common his younger brother they all were models and uh, we went out and he had his young son Luke, uh, Luca with him and we went to International where they had a little bar there and we're drinking and of course my my soon-to-be wife came up and served us I gave her a director card of the hooey <laughs> being all important and said if you want a discount on girl stuff come and see me so I get this phone call two weeks later can I can I still get that discount and I went yeah come on down so um, I started dating her, and the rest is history. We got married. Uh, lovely guy, friend of Kobe's and that, Leon Nass. Uh, I was partying with him a lot at the time, and my wife was uh, uh, nanny for their child, Hunter, and they were living in Krobakan. Um, They all came to the wedding, <clears throat> as did my mum, and then Pudu's got pregnant, and I'm down in... Legion and Seminyak still, things weren't going that great between me and Kasim. Uh, I love him dearly, but sometimes things like that happen. And so I just said, come on, let's go to your village. I want to I want to establish some kind of business and set ourselves up there. I, I was 45 at the time. Um, I'm 61 now. So uh, since then, I pretty much... I bought a little piece of land, which was dirt cheap back then, and just started building the dream, which I'm still riding at the moment. And I've got two lovely children. And uh, Selena was born first, so it was called Villa Selena. We moved in six months after she was born at the Bidan, the midwife here. And um, 
and it was only a shell of a house and had basic uh, essentials, um, of course, electricity and, and, and water and stuff. But, yeah, uh, I kept going back to Australia for the last, you know, until up to pre-COVID, and I was tiling in Jindabyne. I had a good um, network of builders there, um, Dave Philpott, um, other dudes there who I, I – I connected well with and they gave me plenty of work and um, I was able to send the money back or bring it back with me and develop the uh, the villa as it went. And now it's pretty much done, even though I'm always got a new project in mind. I just finished a new fish pond here. Um, but um, yeah, uh, so that's the life I lead. And coming here, as you know, um, I was... I've been very upset with the, the situation of trash, of garbage on this island for a long time. It's supposed to be the, the island of the gods. And um, when I think of that, I think of pristine environment. And unfortunately, uh, that just hasn't been achieved as of yet. People, a lot of good people are trying on this island, a lot of local people. Um, but it's a very complex issue and uh, I don't know how it's eventually going to end up because what happens is that in these kind of, um, you know, in developing countries and that if problems are solved, then there's no funding. <laughs> so it's almost, you know, as though they, you know, it's, it's hard for them to solve problems, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, they solve the problem. They put themselves out of a job. That's one of the. That's the central, it. That's one of the central points in Darren McGarvey's book, Poverty's Fire. He's an amazing author from a housing commission background in Glasgow, and uh, yeah, he makes that point about a lot of the kind of middle class non for profit organisations that are operating in that space of curing poverty. They do the same thing. It, it can it can be uh, applied to the environment to government or, or non-government. If you're in the, in the caper of curing problems, which will put you out of a job, then it's, it doesn't make much sense to cure the problem. Does it? Yeah. Well, look, you know, there's, believe it or not, there's the amount of greenwashing going on on the planet is phenomenal. Um, uh, you know, the, the, Non-profit industrial complex likes us to think different, but um, you know, uh, again, it's like you got to look through the the science, their science, and, and really find out what's real and what isn't. I mean, living on the front, uh, the frontier or the front line of that where I am, um, you soon sort out what's real and what isn't, and what's truth and what isn't. But um, you know, uh, there's there's a lot of amazing people over the planet. Um, I, there was a guy named uh, 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 who ran Roll Foundation, uh, good old Mike. Uh, he's passed a few years back, but he was at the forefront of cleaning up Bali. And I think it was the reason why he ended up getting cancer because he had so much uh, opposition from uh, exposing uh, NGOs and the like, and companies, right through to Coca-Cola and 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 
larger surf brands, that they're only putting Band-Aids on the festering problem and that they had to really commit themselves and do a lot more than just pick up trash on Cooter Beach. I mean, that's a great thing. Thank you very much, Coke and everyone else who does it. But, you know, let's get to the root of the problem. And I had an anthropologist here who did a lot of great work about 10 years ago, Gian, from uh, Italy. And um, he said, Matthew, it's so easy. Start at the top. Clean the top up, you know, which they mean Kintamani and all that joint, because everything gets washed down. From You know, that's what gravity does. And then just clean it up as you go down, and it's the end of the problem. But um, it seems as though that kind of science is being ignored, <laughs> unfortunately. But, yeah, um, uh, Mike did a lot of great work. You know, there's people here like Steve Palmer and and the like, and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do their bit. But it, it's just like uh, there's nothing clear-cut about, um, you know, the – the new green uh, movement, um, a lot of it's farcical, a lot of it is untrue, but, you know, that's another challenge, I suppose, for the, the common people of the planet to sift through and, and find a solution. And that's what I've been trying to do. Yeah, that's right. And I saw that firsthand when I was up there. Oh, man, it, it's, it's such a complicated one, the solution to the trash problem. Like, the obvious solution is to just ban single-use plastics and plastics in general coming out of, you know, what is essentially... They're never going to do that. They're never going to do that. Look, I can't look blame, Jed, you know. I can't blame Indonesians for littering in some in no. some ways because I'm like, it, it's actually an honest response to the problem. Like, plastic itself or rubbish, yeah, like in Australia, people might put it in bins and it might go to a waste disposal center, but it's not disappearing. It's still going into the earth. Like once it's created, 100%. you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So, I mean, I guess in Indonesia and a, a lot of Asia, they're like, well, why even go through any of that nonsense? I may as well just chuck it on the ground since it's going there anyway. It'll just go into either the ground in front of me or the ground somewhere else. Uh, or, you know, in Australia's case, we send our trash to China so they can deal with it. We pay people to take the trash from us. Well, I'm not sure if that, that deal's on anymore. China got fed up with a lot of countries. and But I know that we were sending container loads of, of just shit trash to Indo. And uh, Canada was doing that as well. And Canada put uh, someone's nose out of joint, Jacoby or someone a few years back, and they just sent all the trash back to them. <laughs> But, um, you know, look, uh, it's really hard for people in developing countries to get a handle on it all. They don't really have the skills and, or knowledge to truly think for themselves. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the institutions that serve the ruling class are really prevalent. And, you know, look, the ruling class is all about, you know, oil and all about, you know, um, uh, I mean, plastic is a byproduct of oil. I, I keep telling the villagers here, do you know that this plastic bag is actually benson? It's it's petrol, it's oil. And they go, what? And it's like, yeah, that's why you, you don't burn it and you don't throw it in the environment. Because I try and just tell them that when it breaks down, 
the <clears throat> the environment eats it and then the fruits or whatever become contaminated in a way you know it might take years and years but that's going to be the ultimate result um you leave plastic in the ground long enough it's going to break down and then it's got to go somewhere a lot of a lot of indonesians and that think that throwing it into rivers uh dry bed rivers when the rains come that it's just going to take it into the sea actually i had a, a very important uh person a long time ago uh back in legian who i've you know, um, who I never expected. They threw something on the ground and they're, they're Balinese. And I said, mate, what are you doing? He said, oh, it doesn't matter. It'll end up in the ocean. I said, yeah, that's our playground. That's where we surf. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, um, okay. Um, so, I mean, if you've got that kind of response from uh, some surfers, um, whether it's ignorant or just plain lazy or whatever, uh, what kind of... Uh, response you're going to get from people who can't even swim and don't go to the beach and don't go to the ocean <laughs> they're just thinking yeah yeah throw it in the ocean <laughs> that's a good that's you know um that's a good solution you know and uh unfortunately i live on the beach here and i'm physically having to clean it up and i see the effect it has on on uh wildlife and that as well and we all know that good there's plenty of uh stuff on youtube that you can see plastic and fish and everything else so yeah it's um it's an ongoing challenge that's how i see it it's not the first time you've had to surf and, and swim in fetid disgusting water uh, i mean <laughs> the title of your first book scum valley refers to a period in bondi's history in which there was a stink pipe on the beach uh spewing you know sewage and, and hospital waste directly into the lineup made a pretty sick uh, sandbank there, a dependable sandbank. And that was ironically right around the time that Bondi produced its Hall of Fame golden age of surfing. Uh, mate, talk to us a bit about the Scum Valley years, what that term means. Um, I mean, I caught the tail end of it, I guess. Like, uh, I mean, me and mum, I think we first moved to Bondi in the mid to early 90s um and uh, that we were there for a, uh just a couple of years we we rented a semi up on francis street uh with her friend sandy and uh, sandy's boyfriend yapama this uh black fella from up cape york way and uh you had the surf shop on the corner and uh that was yeah that was my introduction to surfing it was you know going into your surf shop and just copying all these <laughs> tripped out like fresh prints of bel-air like uh you know day glow parachute <laughs> pants and speed freak iconography and you know you might cop fucking rob trujillo from metallica behind the counter or jake brown you know that the iconic skater like uh it was just this core tripped out bastion of you know, where surfing meets the big smoke, that's kind of Bondi. It's like, it's not like some other surf towns along the, the East Coast or Australia. It's very much an inner city surfing community and it reeked of that. And uh, my earliest memories of you actually was, uh, I remember some dude nicked a board off the rack uh, from your surf shop and uh, we were playing cricket out the front, me and Eddie Ryle and, and Brendan Allen and, um, you know, a couple of great surfers from the area who you mentored and 
this dude's come running down the street with a surfboard past us and there's a, a waiting yellow hatchback on the corner of Francis Street and oh, what is that cross street? I can't remember, but uh, he's gone to jump in the car. The boards stayed outside of the car. They're kind of holding it on the roof, I think, of the car just by their hands and trying to drive off. And you've come fanging down the street, shirtless in blundstones, just pounding the pavement. And uh, you've just run. And as the car's driving up the street, you've jumped like Jean-Claude Van Damme style, who, you know, was the big action thriller superstar of the time. You've jumped on the roof of the car. The dude's let go of the board. Uh, You've commando rolled along the ground, just got a bit of asphalt on your back and uh, picked the board up and walked past us. You know, we're just looking at you, slack-jawed, eyes bulging. You're like a fucking superhero. And you were just like, yeah, yeah, Groms. And like, you know, went back to your surf store. But I mean, this was, I guess, the, the age I grew up in in Bondi. It was, uh, you know, we were itinerant renters, you know, mums from Forbes, um, didn't know anything about surfing. Uh, but it was through those interactions in your surf shop uh, with you yourself that I knew at some point I would surf. And that point came in 2000 when we moved back to the area after renting in other parts of the Eastern suburbs. And uh, we had a house opposite, uh, it was in Gould street. So it was where the Swiss grand is opposite the beach, really like one street back from the beach was a a four bedder with a backyard. There was a hydroponic weed set up in the roof uh, just before we moved in. And I'll never forget picking up the syringe caps uh, the needle caps that were, were littering the, what would become my mum's bedroom. And uh, that house became an institution over the years. We had several board rider prezzo after parties there. Uh, there was many iterations, so many different flatmates over the years. Um, you know, me and mum li- living with another single mum and her kid. And then, you know, we, we ended up uh, having adopting uh, one of my good mates, a house guy from Bondi and, you know, then there was like uh, this another mom and her Maori daughter were sharing the house and her mates were all the kind of house crew from Woolloomooloo and Glebe. And these guys were all bombed out on the smack. And, you know, these, these dudes were just sliding off the hallways uh, trying to get out of the joint. And I mean, you know, I guess why, yeah. why I'm saying all this is because people often talk about the area as if it, was always affluent and and really that affluence i watched it come in you know and you would have seen it uh, come in at different stages but really it only hit around about you know it only hit proper i'm going to say from the mid noughties onwards prior to that there was still a lot of low-income residents and if you've ever spent a lot of time in bondi like it's high density living. It's fucking cunts stacked on top of each other, cunts surfing on top of each other. Um, there's a lot of space for friction, but there's also a lot of space for community. Um, you know, and the suburb really entertained, you know, it had fucking the skits Maori crew there who'd always been there, predated me by decades. Um, and, you know, then it had like the Bohemians, it had heaps of gays. It had, um, you know, but then you had these infamous incidents, like you had the, the PSK gang, the Parkside killers who were, you know, this American ripoff gang, but they fucking murdered like, uh, I think eight or so gay men over the years, throwing them off the cliffs there. And, um, you know, you had some awful shit going on, some heavy shit. Uh, it was a really eclectic place. You also had a, a lot of money there. If you went up the hill a bit, you know, up to Ward's Vaucluse and, Watson's Bay, Rose Bay, you had like some old money and uh, yeah, it was a full melting pot. So I'm just clarifying that. So people 
don't get the wrong idea about the place. Um, you know, when, when people talk about it being a wealthy place, it, it's a little bit annoying. It's almost like it, it's like I didn't exist or my experience didn't exist. But my experience was the common experience, and this is the foundation of your book. Um, is basically reflecting on that experience, and, and, and gentrification is a big theme of your work. Uh, mate, talk to us about those years and, and, and why it was called Scum Valley and what that meant to you. Well, um, just commenting on, on when you went back there in 2000 and that, I mean, you were continuing, you know, the Scum Valley aspect of it because, you know, um, and there's still uh, bits of that kind of tucked away there these days, you know. Um I know uh, there's older guys and that who don't even like it being referred to as that um, because they feel as though it taints it somehow. But, I mean, that was just a, a, a phrase coined. It might have been even coined by Ant Corrigan, um, uh, amazing uh, local and great surfer uh, back in the day. But it was. It was pretty much... It was called Scum, Scum Valley and, and it stuck. And most guys um, back at that period from other beaches and that um, called it Scum Valley. And uh, it was because of all those things that you mentioned. And, and you know, there was a, a large criminal element to it. Um, we had all the fallout from King's Cross and the inner city. And um, that wasn't pretty all the time, that's for sure. Um, and you know, I had we had friends who were murdered there, and and uh, you know, bashing was you know uh, a regular thing, and and just having to watch yourself at night in different bars and and different places and different back streets and stuff, and not really being certain that you were safe. Um, but you know, I had I had old girlfriends and that who were like just kidnapped off the Campbell Parade there and taken into the Biltmore Hotel and raped and tied up for two weeks. Um, that happened to a good friend and uh, the perpetrators were Mundy and Cox. Um, so you had... Who's Mundy and Cox, like, sorry? Well, they were um, two infamous criminals who escaped jail and this is while they were on the run and they were murderous as far as I can remember, um, they were just, they were scum. And there they were, Scum Valley and the Biltmore Hotel especially, suited them down to the ground. And, um, you know, Biltmore was, um, you know, you used to have the Astra, you used to have the Biltmore, you had the fondue here. These were all the darkest side of, of life, you know. Um, this is where you could get your heroin or you could get your whatever you wanted or you can indulge in fucked up, shit or or whatever if you were looking for it you could find it um and you know uh, let's face it you said talking about needles and that i remember when i was young um up in sir thomas mitchell and that just you know uh the lawns and that which were just next door to the astra and all that were always littered with needles and different parts of the pavement and that you had to be careful where you were walking you know, and stuff like that. There was a, a huge drug culture. I think that came from that heroin that was being brought in through the Vietnam and all that. And it was just that over 
that hangover. Um, though, I mean, I unfortunately got involved in heroin when I was younger. Um, after pretty much I'd grown up, like I was in my 30s. And um, I just, you know, I, I, um, I just, through no fault of anyone else's, I, I ended up using it. I'll never say I was a heavy addict or anything, but I definitely liked it and I definitely used it. And I was in with a crowd who were all doing the same. And I suppose that's one of the hardest things about it is that, um, you know, you, you come clean and you want to, you know, maintain your your social reputation and that and then you're out at night at the pub and you're having a drink and one of those guys comes up to you and says you know let's go and it's like you're drunk I mean the beast within has already taken over and it's like yeah fuck it whatever um and of course you know in those places like Bondi Scum Valley and that you're subjected to that um on a high level um there was not many people who weren't indulging in drugs. I'm not putting the whole place down. There were some very respected, um, good people there, and uh, I was very lucky to be part of that community. But on the whole, you know, the surfing culture was a drug culture, and the beach culture allured, um, you know, all types of people. So I think I say in one of my books that, you know, you used to get everything from, you know, uh, movie stars to, you know, uh, musicians to everything. But they came down to Bondi. They just became uh, another person because no one actually outshone the icon that Bondi Beach was and uh, what happened between those two sandstone headlands and just how majestic the whole place is for being an inner city beach with the concrete right up to the shore, um, action-packed concrete, um, and then the escapism of the surf, of the bergs and the bars there, the kiddies pool at North, the uh, um, the uh, life-saving clubs. That stretch of sand was a salvation for many a person and it saved many a person's life. Um, but in saying that, um, I'd like to mention... Uh, a person who's done a hell of a lot for uh, Bondi recently, and that's Terry Jenkins. And he and himself, he did two documentaries on Bondi. Uh, one was Bondi Forever. And um, what he tried to do was he tried to establish, um, you know, a, a documentary which actually uh, educated people about the roots of Bondi and how it was... Uh, it might have been such a famous beach, but there was always a, a, a communal camaraderie and there was always a, a, a great spirit of people wanting to guard and look after the beach, which we did. And whether they called it Scum Valley, Bondi or whatever, um, we always loved our beach and we always felt proud of it and we always felt obliged to um you know have some kind of guardianship over it i mean the aboriginals used to think it was a what great place to have corroborees and to uh do their spiritual trip it was a special place for them um where we were just pretty much uh 
doing the same thing but a century later and 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 hopefully doing them justice and the beach justice in being custodians you know yeah but scum valley yeah it, it's morphed all its life but scum valley was basically related to the low income um per capita the actual you you mentioned that it was um uh densely populated well in australia it's the most densely populated suburb in australia and uh you know having everyone live on each other um you know it's it was convenient you know you you didn't have to put your own music on you could listen to your neighbors you could uh <laughs> knock on your neighbor's door and score a foily um you know uh, <laughs> there was a there was a lot of negatives if you wanted to look at the negatives, but there was a lot of positives. I mean, the bottle-o, <laughs> the, the various bottle-o's were only a stone's throw away. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it served our needs as, as crazy young youth. And, um, you know, I suppose that's why there was a stigma attached to it about being um, kind of wild and unconventional and, and, and scummy. But um, in saying that, um, uh, my sequel to Scum Valley, uh, A Bondi Story, um, is all about uh, the young kids who were kind of behind the eight ball, who were from broken homes, who were just, you know, doing their best there to work shit out. And um, they... Uh, I, I had an opportunity to open my surf shop there and, of course, start Bondi Board Riders back in 89. And they flocked to the club and it, uh, it became a really special thing in the way that it gave them a sense of purpose. It gave them an identity to be part of the Bondi Board Riders. And what Shane and I did with that club over the the first seven years that I was there until I, I flew the coop of Bondi, um, we 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 um, pretty much turned those kids into men. Uh, they did it themselves, of course, but we presented the opportunity and they really became great surfers in their own. Um, there was so many young kids and... Uh, uh, Josh Sampson, Jason Berlin, Mikey Beam, Gunnar Maslaka, Steve McIver, you know, uh, later pro Luke Hitchings, Aaron and Kobe Graham from Bronte, um, Tom Whitaker, even Geordie Lloyd. Um, you know, all these guys were just kind of guys, uh, surfing. And as soon as I opened the club and that they had something that they could attach themselves to and they knew especially with Shane and my uh guidance and, and help that they they were going places that's why they stayed loyal we uh, we ended up um achieving quite a bit and one one great thing that we did do was we took them to Hawaii in 91 uh 92 the year after Shane had won the Billabong Pro at, at Sunset got him a house at Velzi and uh, basically um, Kavika, one of the black shorts, who was a good friend of mine and Shane's, came over, introduced all the boys to Davey Boy and, and to uh, all the lads, all the guys who were surfing Velzi as well. And um, 
you know, we fitted in and we played touch every other and we invited the Hawaiian guys and we had Barbies and we smoked the Pocololo with them and we went and surfed pipe with them and backdoor and sunset and, you know, guys ended up um, uh, gaining their badge of honour over there and I know that when we came back from that trip, uh, which was the first trip I ever, I think, that was ever done by an Australian uh, club, uh, taking the club to Hawaii for, to gain expertise. Uh, when we came back to Bondi, um, everyone who went with us there, Bo Savastos and uh, Brad Valenti, et cetera, who's passed now and that, they all just came into their own. And um were regarded as uh, much better surfers. And then we had this inner club rivalry with a, a club called In The Nude, who I was uh, originally surfed for. And we were seen as the underdogs and we came up against them several months after that trip and uh, we beat them. And they had uh, they had a list of, of pros in there. They had Brano, Robbie Sherwell, they had uh, Simon Law, you know, they had uh, Rod Kerbox, you know, Bill Powers, Dave Davidson, Willem Ben Weber. I mean, they had the cream, they had Crammy, you know, and everything. And our club just had me and Shane and a bunch of the boys, <laughs> Jason Burland and that, you know. And uh, these guys were never looked upon as, as uh, threatening to the status of the beach and for them to actually come along and ask to beat uh, ITN, who were former uh, Australasian club winners, where they'd been the best of Australia. It really marked a turning point at the beach where all those guys who surfed in our club, uh, they never looked back. And a lot of them have taken, as you know, Luke Hitchings and uh, Tom Whitaker and I know Aaron and Kobe have done a lot, um, you know, with their surfing lives. Uh, and and um, a host of those kids have taken that legacy and it's really helped them uh, to become the, the, the guys that they are, you know. Mate, that chapter... That chapter of Bondi surfing history is so fascinating because uh, you had this golden age of professional surfing coming out of the eastern suburbs, but then there was this monumental split in the club culture down there. And, you know, you had you leading one club and then you had David Gingell leading ITN. Um, and, you know, Gingell's like an iconic figure from the area. Uh, his father, Bruce Gingell, was the first man to appear on television in Australia uh, he welcomed viewers to television, in fact. And Ginge uh, was the CEO for Channel 9 for years, maybe still is, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, at heart, that guy is Bondi to his core. He's um, one of the boys. He, uh, you know, has always surfed well and, you know, true to form. When uh, old mate James Packer's playing up, you know, Ginge just fucking absolutely wades into a mid-morning punch-on with him, which was just... About the most Bondi thing that's ever happened. You know, here's this fucking... That was so good. That was, I was so proud of both of them. <laughs> I mean, across from the former Astra Hotel, <laughs> you know, in, in plain sight of everyone. Um, yeah, thank God for uh, uh, videos on phones. Eh? There was something went viral there. I think I saw a, a few punches thrown. But, um, yeah, 
that, that's how we used to sort things out anyway. But um, and it was really good to see James and, and Dave, um, you know, uh, well, prolonging that tradition. <laughs> um, look, Dave, I went to school with Dave. He was in a younger grade at Cranbrook than me. I mean, you know, I was a um, Packer was there. You had people like Jody Rich. You had people who were just like almost untouchables, you know, elite, um, the elite ruling class, you know. Uh, and I was just a commoner, so <laughs> it was kind of fun being there and and upsetting them all. But um, in saying that, um, Dave and I had a bit of a fallout. Um, it was over something minor, but it, I took it to heart. And um, we had an altercation, and unfortunately, things got split and got wider and wider. And I did try a few times to offer the olive branch to him and that. But look, when someone's in the ruling class and they've got that much money and that much power and everything else, for a commoner to come up who's already upset set him and try and make things right, you know, you're never really going to be honest with it, you know. And unfortunately, that's what how Dave felt about it. Uh, I mean, I've got no qualms with Dave. Um, I've always loved Dave. I've always understood where he's coming from. I'm sure he's pretty much understood where I'm coming from. I don't think um, some people have said that my my rift with Dave was because he was an easy target. Well, that's uh, it can't be further from the truth. Um, you know, if you want to pick on someone, you don't want them being part of the wealthiest family in Australia. I'll tell you that right now. I got a lot of backlash. Um, you know, I even had my state bank uh, private business account uh, monitored. I had all kinds of stuff being done. Uh, I got I set up and busted. I'm not saying that came from Dave or that, but, um, you know, it was all through that period of time. And it was like uh, it was it was like um, I was the easy kind of scapegoat for a lot of the problems and a lot of things fucking up down there. I mean, young kids in the club were smoking dope or whatever. I was part of the youth. I was a youth liaison officer at Waverley in the council. I talked to the police. I said, "Please stop busting these kids. They're just trying a bit of pot." I mean, can't you go after them? guys on alcohol were abusive and whatever else and committing crimes and so um I, I I was seen as a bit of a target for uh different people in the area a lot of people didn't like the fact that I kind of waltzed in and set up and and became popular and uh it looked as though I was successful but I mean if you had a look at my credit list <laughs> uh which never got paid um you know, I mean, I ran, I, I was never a businessman. I was there because of community. I was there because I seized an opportunity um, that I saw was in my blood. I mean, my uncle Robert Keneally had the surf shop there. I'd always wanted to open a surf shop. Uh, I ran ITN. I was the backbone of that in the way of um, point scores and uh and uh, just up-to-date news with what was happening, et cetera. It was part of my writing skill, you know. And I loved trying to organise uh, contests on the beach. Even before ITN, I, I was organising comps with Spot and uh, the Webbers and all different 
crew, Phil Ledley and, and different guys had come down and Bill Powers and that and surfing it, and they end up calling them Elkabouts. Um, and that was like in between Panache and ITN. So I always had that kind of running through my veins. I wanted to help be an organiser. I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to, as much as that I, I probably wasn't the perfect example to be a leader, I sincerely uh, believed in my heart that uh, my help uh, was good and, 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 I, and I just tried my best to, to uh, bring uh, people together possibly um, the more um, marginalised ones. Um, I was always happy to see young kids um, with only one parent come in and join the club. It really gave me satisfaction to take them under my wing and, and look after them and make sure that they felt a part of something special. Um, and, you know, like to be in that position, I, I'm so grateful that, that I was in that position and it all worked out, you know, and um, as much as that, I had a bit of a <clears throat> drug problem, um, you know, throughout my life, off and on. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, we've all got we've all got crosses to bear and we all aren't perfect. But um, I've never gone out of my way to hurt anyone. Uh, deliberately and uh, I like to sleep well at night and have a clear conscience so I've definitely never ripped anyone off um, and I've definitely not gone out to hurt anyone deliberately so I am happy about that I'm, I'm proud I, I should say and um, yeah um, the club was really a special important time for me in my life to really grow myself and that and uh, to help in what way I can with Shane and that with the other kids and um, you know help create some kind of hope and and future for them yeah well I've got to thank you personally because you know you were my introduction to surfing as I mentioned and you know I guess when you're a kid from a broken home a, you know, a pretty violent poor dysfunctional single parent home you kind of gravitate towards the the dark angels or the you know the the kind of outlaw characters, and you were very much that. Uh, when I was a kid, I can remember you coming back from backdoor with a chip to, uh, from Hawaii, having surfed backdoor, and you had a chip tooth, and you had this Dahui license, and you know I can just there was so much of this rock star energy, but also this goodwill. Like I was always treated so well there at your surf shop. You know, I'd rock up there in bare feet, fucking probably covered in snot and fucking tomato sauce or something. And, uh, you know, I was, I was <laughs> always entertained. You know, I was never told to leave or spoken too sternly. I was able to hang out there. I was given free stickers on the way out. Um, you know, it was just a, a nice little hang spot. Thanks, Jed. And, That's really kind of you to say that. Yeah, man. And, you know, I wasn't the only one. There's many people that benefited um, from that. You, you know, you were old enough to identify kids who were coming from backgrounds that were less than ideal. And, and you, you took that uh, role on to, to kind of mentor them and stuff. And, you know, yeah, mate, if, if you were the perfect middle class, well-raised dude, then I probably wouldn't have talk to you even as a kid you know what i mean like i i, I didn't gravitate <laughs> well to, you wouldn't have connected yeah well that's right you wouldn't have connected. I, I didn't necessarily gravitate towards those kinds of people just because the, the the energy was 
was you know like or especially as i got older and anyway that's just the way it goes i guess you, you, your energy syncs up with similar energies for better yeah better, usually, the often same for frequencies. Worse. uh exactly um the same frequency, you know, and, you know? and you had your cross to pair with drugs, and you know I might have gone that way if I hadn't been exposed to you know Wim Hof breathing techniques and you know, other ways to heal trauma. I, I, you know, you came from a very traumatic background, so I assume um, you know the the heroin and that was it was probably uh, just a, your attempt to self medicate when you know the going got tough in your thirties, as it does. That that is often when you forced to pay the piper yeah well you know like oh man you know like just everything was on a platter back then um you know uh it really depended um what your character was like as well a lot of people's characters were um yeah fuck it um i'll try that or you know let's do that or you know and and it seemed to be like the more outrageous you was, as you can read in Mont's books and partially in mine, and that it kind of like the more stigma that was attached to your reputation. And not that I started heroin or tried heroin to think that that was going to elevate me into any great status, social status, but it's just part of that. Uh, it's not really nihilism, but it's like almost as though, um, you know, there's a smorgasbord of everything down there. Uh, that's what Bondi was like. And, um, you know, it was really hard not to pick up the forbidden fruit. Um, you know, I suppose other guys who, who had different uh, perspectives from different upbringings and that thought differently. But generally, uh, most people were out to get shit-faced. And... Um, that was just uh, that just seemed to be a really really important rule in the in the in the surfing rule book. Um, he who gets most fucked up wins, and um, you can there's there's a history of that right through every beach. You know, I mean, you got to just look at you know Dogtown in in California. You look at um, you know up on the Goldie there, and that uh, a lot of great surf. Was, mate, they weren't angels, that's for sure. Um, but again, it was all part of the culture, and it was, um, yeah. Some people could think, oh, thank God that surfing has become mainstream and it isn't like that anymore. But you know, it had its time and its place. And um, geez, if it wasn't us people, um, you know, leading the way with uh, and people before us um, picking up a board then, um, you know, maybe a lot of people who have discovered it and getting a buzz out of it today wouldn't be standing on a wave either. So, yeah, everything has its place. It evolves. I, I look at mainstream surfing now and Will Weber, uh, he came up with a great name for it a few years back and it, it's imprinted in my brain and it, it's... Uh, yeah, the basket case it's become. <laughs> and when you look at it like from an old guy like me um, and look at it, it's it's uh, early days and and uh, it was as that subculture was really alienated and it was nothing. It was the total opposite of mainstream. So um, to see it come full circle is uh, quite amazing. 
Um, but I suppose it's just part of that capitalist arm where, um, you know, anything that we can exploit to make money out of, um, you know, uh, nothing sacred. So um, it was always going to happen. Um, it was just a matter of time. I, I'm just lucky I grew up and was born in at a time when I enjoyed all that, uh, those roots. And, uh, you know, I was there when it was a full subculture and, and uh, you know, at Bondi, you had about six or seven groups of surfers who identified with that group. And it was very barbarian. Um, <clears throat> and I know that William Finnegan wrote that book, Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life. Well, you know, that describes it very much so. And uh, as much as at Monton, mm -hmm. myself, uh, write quite a bit about it and that there's quite a few authors. Um, I think Peter, Peter Maguire, who wrote uh, Tie Stick, um, Californian, I first met him with Aunt Corrigan at at, um, at Byron Bay in 85 when we were doing the Byron Classic up there and he stayed and he was never the same after we introduced him to um, Aussie culture and traditions. Um, uh, kind of gobsmacked him and he's never been the same but um, yeah these guys they write about um, you know the whole uh, drug trade uh, there's that sea of darkness um, you know there's there uh, there is a scummy dark side to a lot of the origins of surfing as much as that you get morning of the earth and you get that purity and uh, you know there's been other films which have followed in, in, in that light. Um, yeah, it, it was a it was a completely uh, a complete kaleidoscope of, of different stuff and it was an amazing time to ride through the 60s, 70s and 80s. But um, I, love that, yeah. I love that you mentioned the, the purity of morning of the earth because at least one member of that cast was done for drug trafficking. But uh, yeah. I mean, uh, mate, they were never far from it. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been in uh, surfing in the 70s and 80s. I mean, the global surfing population was fuck all. And, uh, you know, the surf industry was literally built on the back of drug trafficking operations, a lot of the, the startup capital for some of the biggest companies 100% from uh, that kind 100%. of nefarious activity um, talking about keeping the, the degenerate undercurrent going and the degenerate culture I mean don't worry Elksy I got you covered there brother I'm, uh, fl we're flying that flag pretty loud and proud of here it ain't that swell <laughs> and uh, mate proud of you mate <laughs> very proud proud of you and the boys uh, <laughs> and uh, you know I have a lot to thank uh, Bondi obviously don't turn woke no don't turn woke on mate, me mate <laughs> woke's a joke that, that's the title of one of my poems uh, but <laughs> Now, the yeah, I'd love to talk to you a bit about ITN in the nude board riders because yeah. by the time I was on the scene, it had packed up. There was just Bondi board riders left. And, but the history and the, the shadow of both ITN and yourself loomed large over the suburb when I was a Grom. Uh, the folklore remained. You know, there were still veterans of that club around Rod Kerr, Spot Anderson uh, among them. Talk to us about ITN. Talk to us about the shenanigans. It's basically peerless in terms of that rich vein of surfing degeneracy. I mean, maybe Queenscliff, 
uh, Queenie Boardwriters coming up with Spit the Winkle may have been the crowning glory of that generation of degeneracy, but I still maintain that ITN Boardwriters, Dick Tricks, uh, the defecating on opponents' car bonnets, um, <laughs> and whatever else was going on at that period. I mean, in the nude board riders, that is such a weird name for a board riding club. But fuck, mate, they won the 1986 uh, National Surf League Championships. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the proof's in the pudding. Yeah, so look, you can't you can't forget Stubbsy and spitting the winkle down at the Dunny Bowl at Maroubra either. I mean, he was he was a bit before. Uh, uh, Kobe and that, but he was Sonny's, um, you know, age group, and and uh, you know there was a, a lot of a lot of guys who were in degeneracy kind of down there as well. Cl- but, glad you clarified that. That, that that's an important clarification, Elksy. Uh, yeah, we, we want to make sure we get our facts straight here. Richie Bakulik, uh, former guest, also yeah. a very skilled exponent of the spit the winkle. It was in fact rumored <laughs> to be able to hold the water up his bum until he was able to get into the middle of Marine Parade and then could spurt it onto car windscreens. Incredible skill. Well, that, that, a skilled performer. That was the go. That was the go. And, um, yeah, I, I can't remember who it was, but I had this lady talk to me once and go, I was driving down there at Maroubra and all of a sudden there was all this poo and water on my windscreen. And it's like stubs you just fucking, I don't know, gone for the world record from the car park and fucking hit the target. But, um, yeah, those guys, you know, they weren't short in coming forward either, mate. But, look, ITN, a guy named JJ Botella, uh, Kerbox, um, Bill Powers, myself, Spot, Ginge, we were all at a party over at Bronte. Um, we got kicked out a lot of those parties. Um, well, not so much those other guys, but I did. I hung out with a guy named Grotto. Um, who was a, a bit of a legend, uh, underground legend. And, um, yeah, well, you know, anyway, his name says it all. We got kicked out of a few places. But I didn't get kicked out of this party. Um, I was asked to leave a few parties at Newport Beach, <laughs> if that says anything. <laughs> but, anyway, um, at this party back, it must have been 83 or whatever it was, um, the boys all decided yeah, let's make this club in the nude because we were always getting in the nude. It was just like this, you know, childish thing we never grew out of. It was just like, I'll show you my dick and and chuck a brown eye. And um, we had exponents like um, uh, uh, Cookie. Um, what's he, the younger one's name? Uh, anyway, he would uh, go surfing nude all the time. And we ended up having comps down at Bondi uh, yearly comps, which were nude surf comps. Uh, I went in one once, but I found it very hard to dangle my dick in front of everyone in public. I, I suppose I was, uh, um, I don't know, that that was uh, a prerequisite to be part of the club. So I suppose I had to do it at times. But, yeah, I left most of that stuff to Spot. Spot was just uh, un. Uh, uh, unashamed and unbashful to um, pull his pants down. We, uh, look, we got kicked out of heaps of places. I saw Spot Anderson. I think he pulled his duds down at the diggers on Campbell Parade. I was with Jason Buttonshaw and we were on some mushrooms and we were in the middle of the 
uh, they used to have parking in the middle of this, in the parade. I don't know if they still have it. But we were looking back towards the diggers and it used to have glass out the front so you could see down into the foyer. And Spot had just got in the nude or something and then uh, pulled his dax up quick or something and the bouncers chased him out. Well, this V-dub went past us. And it was like it was all in slow motion. And my mind just registered before it actually happened that the point of contact was inevitable. And Spot ran out onto the road and this V-dub hit him and sent him 20 feet into the air, like metres down the road. Um, yeah, and uh, me and Butto raced down there and we thought he was dead, but um, he survived and he's a great friend. And I, I, I rang up the hospital later that at night to find out if he was all right when I came down. But, um, yeah, like, um, you know, we were dropping our pants anywhere. So uh, uh, I remember that, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it just became this, um, you know, we just became in the nude and everyone knew us for that. And there was several uh, club members who just were not shy at any time. We'd go and have club contests all over Australia and people knew it was us because there's a guy in the nude down there. <laughs> and, yeah, that's in the nude club, <laughs> you know. But, look, that club was a great club. Um, you know, Crammy, Horan, uh, Rich, uh, Richard Cram, Horan, Georgie Wales, Spot, uh, Kerbox, uh, Billy Powers, Pete Campbell, myself, uh, um, Dean Cook, um, and a host of other hot surfers, um, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I was an important and an integral part of that club. And when I had the fallout with Dave a few years later, um, it really hurt to be alienated from them. And um, unfortunately, that's just how it was. But, um, yeah, uh, to me, ITN was one of the hallmark clubs ever in Australia and definitely um, on the level of, of Panache and, and uh, Bondi Board Riders today and stuff and that, that was just a, a really highlight of um, surfing at Bondi and just a, a stream of endless uh, radical surfers who were not just radical free surfers like Steve Corrigan and that were in when they were in Panache. These guys were actually uh, phenomenal in competition as well. And as you said, they proved that in 86 when we took out the Quicksilver team's titles. And, uh, yeah, uh, that made sure that no one could ever doubt Scum Valley and um, the presence of ITN as being a formidable force in the competitive arena. The craziest thing about it is that you had the top talent in the country validating this tripped out degenerate social experiment. Like that's the best <laughs> thing about it. It's not that like, it wasn't just like a bunch of fucking freaks, you know, doing dick tricks on the beach. It's like, no, you had the best surfers on the planet at the time in your club winning the national surf league and celebrating <laughs> this rich vein of degeneracy. It just doesn't get any sweeter than that Elks. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're all born in our in our um, you know in our birthday suit, mate. So, you know, I suppose when you yeah put it into perspective, it's just um, you know, it's uh, just a natural thing to do. And I think ITN just took it that step further. They realised that um, it was a good way to exploit um, the establishment. Uh, I, I'm sure. Um, Spot, you know, in his nudity, um, uh, offended people uh, back in the day. Well, several of us did. Um, but anyway, um, I know that the police were looking for several of us <laughs> at different times because I know at some stage in the 80s they allowed uh, 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 topless um, uh, sunbathing and that down there, but they... They didn't actually condone hanging your dick out and and waving it at girls and things like that. <laughs> That's unsurprising, yeah. Um, and and before I let you go, man, I understand you, you struck up a bit of a relationship with Rob Trujillo, uh, the bass player originally from Suicidal Tendencies, I believe, and then later Metallica. There's an iconic photo of him in your surf store wearing a Bondi board rider's vest. Uh, and I guess one of the, the crazy things for me as a kid and, and, and a teenager was seeing that Bondi had this connection to these icons of heavy metal, these icons of Hawaiian surfing, because it just seemed so far away from where we were at culturally, like where this shitty inner city beach with crook waves and too many people and you know, it just seemed like no respect. And then at the same time, um, you, you turn around one day and there's Buttons fucking sitting at South Bondi with the boys and Liam McNamara and you're like, what the fuck? And, uh, you know, Rob Trujillo and, and Jake Brown, you know, rocking through town, these like icons of skate culture, these icons of heavy metal culture. Uh, and, and that was a big thing, man, as a kid, just knowing that we had these runs on the board, we had these old school connections thanks to yourself thanks to haran um and it was a source of of, of confidence self-confidence self-esteem where there kind of wasn't any I, I guess it really validated the beach and the culture and uh you know just the pathway that you know we were we were worth something there was a bit of value there in, in our culture in our community but yeah talk to us about our relationship with rob um my um one of my cousins, uh, distant cousins, uh, worked for a girly magazine and they did a interview with suicidal tendencies in the early 90s. And that, that was Rob Keneally's daughter, a um, uh, great girl. And the boys said, Mike Clark, who was their guitarist, um, and Rob wanted to go surfing. And they mentioned it to her and she said, look, my cousin's got a surf shop down at Bondi, hardcore why don't you just ring him up and go down there and, and he'll, he'll look after you. And so, so be it. They rang me, I uh, came down, I fitted him out with suits, got him boards. We all went surfing at Bondi. I was left-hand shorey in the corner. I introduced the boys to them all and that. So they got waves and then I took them to the pub and then I took them to, after that, to the good bar, took them into Oxford street with the boys and, they had a pretty wild time. So the next minute they're inviting me to their sound check at Selena's. 
um, Suez were playing down there and that. So I went down, I met Rocky, I met Mike Muir, who's a, a good mate and that these days. And of course, hanging with Mike and, and Rob and uh, felt very special, of course. But um, it was just like, there was no, uh, uh, you know, there was, it was a very real friendship. Um, I mean, I liked Suicide Tendencies back then, but they weren't my number one band. I was listening to a lot of um, house music and going to the Horden parties and blah, blah, blah. It was just another. Fuck. The rat, the rat parties, man. The rat parties at the Horden. Let's take a quick detour into what was going on there. This is a an in, see. This is the thing, right, about growing up at Bondi. You can get on a fucking three eighty, and in twenty minutes, you're on Oxford Street going to the rat parties, where you know these are underground raves with ten thousand people. They're selling pingers openly from fucking used car sale signs, like at the joint. Grace Jones is performing there. Um, yeah. You know, these were absolute institutions in uh, Sydney in the 90s, right with the arrival of Ecstasy, uh, and it was a massive scene. And, you know, it, it, when I was coming up, it, it had kind of moved out of that part of the city and it was a bit more towards uh, the industrial area around St. Peter's, Marrickville, Newtown, whatever. But it was the, yeah. the same people <clears throat> doing the same shit, essentially. Yeah, well, um, uh the guy from King Sellers, uh, what's his name? It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, he used to have these parties. I can't remember the name. Oh, I hope that'll come to me quickly. But um, he used to have them at all the inner city bowling clubs. And they had the elite there. They had like Kate Fisher and all models and they had all the best surface and Craig Claridge and, and you know, um, uh, my mate from uh, Cronulla Shapes Boards, um, Stuart Darcy and the Shantuzies and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he had all the elite kind of dudes who were into raving and and that and they, they'd be at all these uh, fringe parties, you know. And, um, you know, they had King Sellers was an institution. Like everyone went to King Sellers and they had upstairs they had the dance party happening, but... Downstairs they had pool tables and, you know, whatever, three floors of decadence. But um, anyway, uh, the rat parties were actually, I think, originally um, held by the gay community of Oxford Street. And they they was started in the later 80s. And they were at the Horden Pavilion and they, they lasted for about, two or three years and it would be like 10,000 people on ecstasy and all these great performers, Grace Jones and DJs from all over the world and um, and Trough Boy was there. And um, anyway... Um, Trough Boy, uh, for the international listeners, uh, we'll, we'll have to explain. He's an allusion to a guy who uh, used to hang out in urinal troughs and asked to be pissed on. Interesting kink. He was there. (laughs) Did you piss on him? Uh, A couple of times, I think. Of course you did. I made sure it it was nowhere near his his head. (laughs) You'd want him to get too much out of it. You'd feel dirty dirty afterwards, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, these parties, you know, it was pure MDMA and everyone was just loving everyone. And it was just like a huge fucking sex fest. Um 
uh, party extraordinaire. Everyone hooked up and, it, you know, you were on ecstasy, so you'd be – there was casualties down at Bondi, Oxford Street, 6, 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. It was like they were coming home from war, um, you know, just they were disheveled and, and fucked up, but, you know, had the best time of their lives. And, um, yeah, so um, – yeah. What what's dishelved? Is does that is that what happens when you've shelved too many pingers? You become dishelved. <laughs> well, that was that was uh, going around back then. Um, a lot of the gays were top shelfing ecstasy, and if anyone doesn't know what that is, it's putting uh, pills in your bum. Were there any train? And- were there any train wrecks going down? Do you know what a train wreck is, Elksy? No, I don't educate. A me. train wrecks one up the bum and, and one in the mouth, and they meet in the middle and derail you. Oh God! <laughs> I can only imagine, mate. I can only imagine. But you know, whatever you're into, man. Uh, you know, as long as you're not, um, as long as you're not hurting the kids, I don't give a shit. Um, but anyway, look. Uh, yeah, the whole scene back then was underground, so the police weren't onto it and they didn't know what ecstasy was. It was being brought in by the gays from England and, um, you know, with all the new beats and, you know, we, we had everything from Jungle Brothers right through to Grace Jones right through to, you know, everything um, and, and and more. And, and also, let's just acknowledge the fact that Sydney at this time was still being run by, you know, your Roger Rogersons. Like the police was infamously corrupt around this period. So, you know, you could, you could, I'm sure, bribe your way into having old school rages. Like the cops were more interested in selling heroin and selling drugs themselves than shutting parties down. That's that's where they get rid they of. They were their disinterested. That, it was like they were disinterested. It was like no one was getting hurt. You know, everyone was just loving each other. Like really, seriously, if you if you saw someone walk out of those parties and you're you know anyone, you'd probably be more scared of them kissing you than than beating you up. That's for sure. So, you know, um, on the whole, it, it was it was a really good scene, and plenty of handsome dudes and and gorgeous women, and uh, you know, an age group that uh, was hell bent into partying. And, yeah, so that went undetected for about three years and then they ended up closing that down and then it went underground into garages and, um, yeah, um, and then it kind of, I don't know, it ended up um, being very prevalent, of course, in the Oxford Street area and and I think what was up at um, the cross again, the cauldron there was all all different clubs but the beauty of it was is that the the um live music um <clears throat> was still very strong like pubs hadn't traded their music rooms for pokey rooms uh realizing that's where the profit was so i mean you still had suicidal tendencies playing at um you know selena's you still had Midnight Oil, Men at Work, um, Matt Finish, you'd have the Dan come over, you'd have, you know, you had international acts. Um, it was it was quite phenomenal. So you had this smorgasbord of different genres of, of music and um, I, I lapped them all up. I, I know a few of my friends thought I was some gay fuck going to these rat parties and that. 
Uh, that was until I, I actually got them in a headlock and took them to one themselves and then they were converted. But, um, you know, it, uh, to the old uh, rock and roll and even uh, quite a few of the punk guys because grew up through late 70s, early 80s, Sid and Nancy, etc. God Save the Queen, um, and, and total nihilism, nihilism and, and decadence. Um, so there was a lot of that still um, around. And, uh, you know, of course you had um, uh, many great um, underground uh, punk bands back then and um, Huskadoo, et cetera. And, you know, there was a lot of people who kind of didn't want to give up that old stance on rock and roll and punk. And But um, I think most of them, um, there wasn't many who didn't convert. Uh, it was too good a scene and too much fun to be had. But, yeah, getting back to Trujillo, so um, I met I met Suez. I saw him there and that, and for some reason we hit it all off. I was hanging out with him at the cross at their hotel room, and that was it, man. We, we were on together. So every time they came to Sydney, They'd ring me or they'd email me and they'd say, Matt, we're coming, we're going to be here, let's do this, let's do that, blah, blah, blah. So I just built up a great rapport with these guys. I remember taking Mike Clark, you know, insane guitarist, up to um, Bondi Junction once. We were just walking up there, you know, perving and doing different shit. And uh, we walked into a guitar shop and he, he picked up one of the guitars down the other end of the shop to the guy who was behind the counter and started going into a rift. And this guy who was in his own world behind the counter just said, hey, put that guitar down, will you? You know, and I just thought, uh, I wonder how cool Mike's going to be here. And, and instead of Mike going, hey, fuck you, mate, I'm Mike Clark, he just went, yeah, sweet, mate, put the guitar down and walked out. And I thought, that guy just missed out on an insane opportunity to meet one of the best guitarists going around in one of the best, you know, thrash bands. And because of his own arrogance, uh, he missed out. But, um, yeah, so <clears throat> became very good friends with all those guys. Uh, Dean Pleasance, uh, he's an amazing uh, guitarist as well. And then... Rob ended up going to Ozzy Osbourne for seven years and I never heard much from him. An email here or there sent me a few postcards. It was when postcards used to get sent of him snowboarding in, in the Alps or something. And then he rang me out of the blue in uh, or emailed me out of the blue in 2003 and said, and I was living up at Angari, four hours from the point, right next to Grub, uh, down from Thornton and that and was loving just living up there and surfing the point and back beach and everything else. Uh, single, having a ball. Um, and he's gone in touch with me and said, hey, Elksy, did you hear I got the gig with Metallica? And I went, no, nah, man, that's unreal. And like, I'd always like Metallica. I'd, I'd never like, uh, you know, one of my greatest, fondest bands or whatever. So I said, yeah, man, unreal. And then he told me that they were coming out for the big day out in 2004. It was Oz. And I said, well, man, I'm living in Gary, four hours from the point. Fuck, this place is insane. You should stay with me. And he said, I'll stay with you for a week after the after the big day out thing. And I went, yeah, man, no worries. So um, <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah, uh, I met the boys. 
um, up in the Goldie. Uh, Robert asked me to come up and meet him. Uh, they were waiting for me in the lobby. I was late. And then I came up and got out of the car. They had these other cars. They whisked us away. We went to dinner. Fucking went to with some billabong head. I don't know who and these other guys were. And we were just there all eating up, you um, know, exquisite cuisine and stuff. And at this Jap restaurant high and above in the Goldie. And then we ended up at the titty bars and we're all drinking JD. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Hammett loves JD. And um, if you're ever around him and you got a bottle, make sure you offer him some and cigars. And um, they've gone, okay, so uh, you're going home tonight, Elksy, or what? And I went, mate, I'm fucking three hours from home. I'm staying with you. And they just went, oh, okay, sweet. So I went back to the Hilton or wherever we were staying, and uh, I slept <laughs> on Rob's couch for the week. And uh, I went to all their acts there. They did one in Brisbane. And, and I got really good friends with Kirk and doing yoga with him, took them all surfing and hooked up with, saw Mick, Fanning and, and Joel and those guys and other dudes and that who wanted to meet him. I met Jay Phillips at the time and he was just like a, a live bullet. He was just like ricocheting around, uh, loving meeting the guys. He's he's a great friend of all the boys and and that still. Um, he's a, a lovely guy, Jay. Uh, that was the first time I ever met him and we hit it off. And then... Um, yeah, so I stayed there for that week and then they said, okay, so you're going to come to Sydney with us? And I went, man, I've got to fucking go home and work. I, I need money. And they went, oh, okay. So I went back to Yamba and I was working and I got this phone call and it's from the boys and they said, we've got a ticket for you. Uh, you got to go to Ballina Airport. So I just asked my boss, I said, man, I've got to go and hang out with Metallica down in Sydney. Is that okay? And he went, yeah, okay, fuck off. So I got the plane down. I got a couple of friends. I took them down. To, I took uh, Kirk and, and uh, I think Lars was with us and that. I took them down to Doyle's at the Quay. Um, we had, the Strokes were playing, so we went a big day out. After that, Strokes had a big party at Annandale or something afterwards, and, you know, I ended up staying with Rob. And then um, they were going to Melbourne. I just said, no, I'm not going. I've had a ball. I'll see you after the, the tour. And Jay was with him. Jay wasn't going to miss out on, on one minute of fun. God bless him. And so, um, yeah, I went home to Angowry and, and just got back into normal life. Um, buzzing, of course, after hanging out with uh, James, uh, the Kelly Slater of Hard Metal and uh, Lars and that. Uh, they all loved me, which was great. <laughs> uh, I can be likeable at times. And um, so we all got on. And then I picked Rob up from Brisbane after they did the Perth thing and he came and hung out for a week. I had Shagger, the film photographer um, from Goldia had Jay come down. There was a bunch of guys who came down with me and Rob and just wanted to hang out as a posse. And unfortunately there was no waves. So we just hung out. Um, I had, I was playing a bit of DJing then. I had decks. So we had a few parties at our joint. We had girls over and uh, all shit happening. Uh, and then we ended up going to Byron and, and uh, Mars Volta was playing there, and uh, I'd met Mars on the big day out with Rob and that. And so we hung out with them, and 
we uh, we had an insane night at Byron. And then uh, next day he had to leave. So I drove him to the airport and, um, you know, said our goodbyes. But, um, of course, I stay in touch with Rob quite a bit. Uh, we're mates. That's what mates do. And I'm always interested to hear what he's up to. Um, and... Uh, they played Jakarta in 2013, and that was the last time I hooked up with him. And uh, hooking up with him is always uh, a ball backstage, hanging out and stuff. At Jakarta, Kobe was at. Kobe was with Ola, his wife. That was their first date, and I got a photo of both of them with uh, some crazy guy that they were with and a few other people. And uh, they cherish that photo because it's the first photo of them being together. Um, yeah, but all in all, mate, um, hanging out with Metallica is a lot of fun. And um, I don't, uh, you know, I, if anyone ever gets a chance, do it. <laughs> Fucking earth, Elksy. Rock and roll, brother. You're the man. I love you, mate. Uh, I love what you've done for the suburb. Put us on the map. You know, you helped a lot of people at home and you've lived a life of insane human experience. Holy shit. Just make sure wow. you come and visit next time you're here, bro. I love you. You're will, a Bondo mate. boy and uh, you deserve time and you deserve respect. And, and uh, you know, there's always a place for you at my house up here. And, and look, anyone who's a friend or wants, wants to learn out, anything about me or wants to come up, uh, please make the effort to come to North Bali. It's a paradise. It's the Bali of old, as you know. And, um, you know, uh, you know, let's get it on. There's lots of shit to do up here. There's waterfalls. There's, you know, great reef. We even get seasonal waves. Um, there's great fishing. Um, you know, just come up and become immersed in the culture and the tradition and, you um, you know, the I, that's what I love about the villa is that we're always getting new people through here. <coughs> Pardon me. And um, I've met so many friends um, with being here and uh, have sparked up so many good friendships that, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade my life for the world. So that's an uh, invitation to you, Jed, and anyone else who wants to come up, Villa Selena, come on up, um, get into the... Get into the pace of North Bali. And your books. Give your books a plug. Where okay, can we get them? so Scum Valley is my original. Then I've got Bondi, Bali and Beyond, which was a, a compilation of short stories and interviews. Uh, it's all, and of course, my latest book, uh, Bondi Story. Uh, they're all uh, contemporary surf literature. Um, they all... Um, they all delve into, you know, the subculture and and where surfing came from. There's a lot of historic value in there as well. Um, they're available on Amazon if you're international or if you wanted to go to um, Scum Valley Bondi page on Facebook, we've got a link there. And uh, or you just go, uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I've got an online bookstore. Don't know how you get there. That's I'm showing my age, but yeah, they're all available there. And I will be on Facebook over the next month, plugging them as well as the villa. So uh, if you're a friend of mine or you want to know anything, um, tune in, and uh, I'll try and give you as much info as possible. 
Unreal. Thanks so much for your time, Elksy. Mate, I'll see you soon, Dying. I'll be back over in the archipelago uh, probably mid next year. But uh, great to speak to you. Good to see you. look amazing, mate. You look like you're in good nick. Thanks, mate. And uh, Yeah, yeah. come well, over and we'll all hang out. We'll get Kobe up here and uh, we'll have a ball, bro. <laughs> okay, Jed. Thanks, right. mate. Good on you, man. All the best. Speak to you soon.